0: The gods were displeased. They had made the universe out of nothing, bringing light and order and life into being, along with all of the many things needed to sustain this creation. They had sought to shape the world in their own image, and chief among their creations had been humankind, within whom they had invested custodianship over the land, not as supreme lords, but as the highest among equals of all the beasts of land and sea and air. It should have been a creation worthy of celebration, And yet it had been imperfect. In designing and breathing life into this first universe, the gods had seen many ways in which it could be improved upon. And so, in a blinding flash of heat and light, the sun exploded, plunging all of creation into darkness and leaving a blank slate upon which the gods could make another attempt. And so they did. This cycle would repeat again and again and again, with the gods creating the sun and the universe, and yet each time finding fault in that which they had made and erasing their creation to begin anew. But by the fourth time the universe had been remade, the gods remained unsatisfied, and so they readied themselves for another attempt, causing the fourth sun to explode and devour the universe. However, before the fifth sun could be born and new light and warmth could bring the universe into existence, the gods required a gift. You see, for their powers to be truly realized, and for the true splendor of their gifts to be revealed, it was necessary for the living beings of Earth to give of themselves in return. In fact, it was demanded that the various tribes of living things offer from among them two representatives to come forth and be burned upon a great, cleansing fire, giving the ultimate gift, their own lives, and lending the strength of their sacrifice to the gods for the making of the fifth sun and the birth of a new era. These sacrifices, to achieve full potency of power, would have to be made willingly, with bravery and resolve, and without hesitation. And so naturally finding volunteers proved difficult, though in the end brave members of the many races stepped forward and hurled themselves into the fire, giving of themselves that the sun might be born anew. Finally it came time for humankind to give of themselves, and a hush fell over all of the peoples of the earth, for they knew it was time for two among them to burn in the sacrificial pyre, and they feared this. Finally, a man stepped forward. He was tall, handsome, and heavily muscled, his hair clean and well-styled. He hefted a large makahuit in one hand, its obsidian blades reflecting the light of the pyre, and a padded cane and feather shield adorned with fetishes in the other, and his clothing was that of a warrior of high rank and prestige. "'I am the greatest warrior from among my people,' the man pronounced. "'I have fought in many great battles and taken countless honored captives, whose lives I have offered up to the glory of the gods. It seems only fitting, having devoted my life to this pursuit, that my final act of honor be to offer my own life for this purpose, and so I will hurl myself into the pyre. But is there no other with the resolve to join me?" For a long time no one stirred, and the drop of a needle could have been heard across the dark and barren emptiness. Finally, from near the back of the gathered crowd, a stirring was seen, and a figure pushed forward through the crowd. It was a man as opposite the great warrior as could have been conceived. He was small, unassuming, and clothed in the simple garments of a peasant. It was clear he was no master of the bow or of the atlat, and he lacked the physique of a great artisan or farmer. His hair was neat, yet unadorned, and his feet were bare. I am Nanna though I doubt any of you have heard my name. I have no great deeds to speak of, and my mark upon this earth can hardly be said to exist at all. I do not relish the thought of hurling my body upon the holy flames of sacrifice. In fact, I had hoped another would step forth to claim this great and terrible honor. However, since it seems no other will claim this task, I suppose the meager gift of my insignificant life will have to do. And at that, Nanawatzin stepped up, to the next, ta- stepped up next to the tall, imposing figure of the warrior, and said no more. As they marched towards the flames, feeling the heat cascading off as they approached, The crowd showered the great warrior with gifts of finest jade and gold and offered great prayers in his honor. He was draped in fine cloth and his shield and makahil were carried for him in regal procession. Almost an afterthought, Nanawatzin received only the simplest of trinkets and was clothed in simple simple linens. When prayers were offered, his name was rarely included. At last, the great train reached the edge of the pyre and it was time for the sacrifice to be offered all present could feel the watchful eyes of the gods, patiently waiting for the gift of life to be given. The great warrior stepped forward, shedding all his gifts and belongings, and faced the flames. The fire seemed far hotter and more vast up close, and as he gazed into the roaring inferno, all the courage and prestige of a thousand battles vanished, and in the place of the great warrior there was but a man, frightened and alone, with too great a burden upon his shoulders to bear. He could hear the sound of his flesh crackling and smell the acrid smoke of his demise, and in this moment he faltered and turned back. I... I am sorry. He hung his head in shame. I cannot. Stunned silence gripped the crowd, and for a long time no one made a sound. Then, silently, but with great steadiness, Nana stepped forward. Until now he had been all but forgotten. The small, simply-dressed man walked towards the pyre, stopping by the side of the dejected warrior. He reached up, placed a hand on the man's slumped shoulder, and whispered to him, though what he said none could hear. The two men gazed into one another's eyes for a long moment, tears shimmering in the eyes of the warrior, the orange light of the pyre playing on the mournful faces of both men. Then, in one fluid motion, Nanna withdrew his hand, stepped forward, and flung himself into the fire. The crowd was astonished, And there was total silence as Nanawatsin's body was consumed by the sacrificial flames. Then, as the last wisp of smoke rose towards the heavens, the sky began to redden, and the first days of dawn crept over the edge of the world. mm mm-hmm. up buddy how you doing
1: you know just uh melting hey no <laughs> doing another episode
0: yeah for sure yeah it's it is and uh it's it's gonna be kind of a long one so uh i feel like given the heat and the and the length and the time that we, you, you want to just dive in i mean do you have anything you want to add i don't want to stop you from doing that
1: i do not have anything i want to add so i will sit back and let you take control
0: wow that sounds great that's exactly what i like to hear okay okay. well now i regret my choices hey that's okay um (laughs) your regret is part of it that's all part of it for me um (laughs) so yeah uh let's start the show
1: it already started
0: yeah that's true um so yeah that little intro bit there was just a kind of a melodramatic retelling of my own composition of uh, of a sort of one take on on the uh the Mexica or the Nahua creation myth. Um, there are many different versions of it. Um, but the whole tale of Nanahuatzin is really cool, and there's a little talk about it in Fifth Son uh, by Camilla Townsend, which, spoiler alert, is my big source for for most of this. Um, and it, I decided to include it at the start there uh, because I think that it does a really great job of sort of expressing the Mexica's view of themselves um, as being these sort of understated uh downtrodden people who had sort of come from nothing and like were willing to step up to do what was necessary to create uh you know in the myth the world but i think also sort of can be used as a a cognate for the sort of order and uh you know whatever call it empire whatever you want to call it that they are working to create in the central mexican Basin. Um, i just think it's kind of a cool analogy for that um so there it is there's that um So yeah, uh, we're picking up, this is part three of our uh, Aztec, um, what was supposed to be a trilogy. Uh, Spoiler alert, it's going to be a quadrilogy. Um, I lied to you. We're not going to do the next episode next week, but we are going to pick back up with this um, at some point. So you're not going to get out of this this easily. Um, Two weeks ago, we left off with the newly outlawed wannabe conquistador. And actually, I guess at this point now, that's probably three weeks ago, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. So, whatever, three weeks ago, in part two, episode 61 of the show, uh, we left off with the newly outlawed uh, Hernan Cortez departing Cuba with a small expeditionary force. Uh, His destination was the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula, where he'd hoped to learn more of the famed inland kingdom that he kept hearing rumors about from earlier expeditions. Uh, his primary motivation is the pursuit of personal wealth and prestige, and so to this end, he's pretty prepared to kind of lie, cheat, steal, kill um, any of the bad things that you can think of, uh, and especially if the victims of all of these acts are the sort of, quote, godless, heathen indigenous peoples of Mesoamerica, who are really not much better than animals to a lot of these good Catholic Iberian peoples.
1: Lie, cheat, and steal. Who's this guy? Eddie Guerrero? Whoa, hey. hey.
0: No, actually, I mean, I guess Eddie Guerrero, Latin Heat would have probably more identified with the uh, with the Aztecs here, as a as a Mexican man himself, Mexican American man. Yeah, but it wasn't that his uh tagline No, no, lie it was. Yeah. No, it, totally. Yeah. I'm not detracting from the the excellence of your of your comparison. Uh, it would have been really cool if, if anyone involved in this story had at any point performed a frog splash. That would have been really awesome.
1: Dude, I saw... Uh, I So, years back, I went to, like, uh, SmackDown. Yeah. When it was in Providence, I must have been, like, 14. And I saw a cage match between JBL and Eddie Guerrero, <laughs> and he frog splashed from the top of it, it was sick. Dude,
0: that's so cool. Um... so uh against the wishes of governor velasquez of cuba um, and in defiance of the governor's decree uh, cortez hoped to find the fabled central basin kingdom uh, and conquer it in the name of god and the spanish crown and establish a domain for himself in the hopefully uh, rich and fertile lands that he would find meanwhile uh back in june in you know in real life here Um, we last left the flourishing uh, Mexica civilization of Tenochtitlan um, just as their civilization was entering its golden age. So having established hegemony over the central Mexican basin uh, through basically near constant warfare and deft political maneuvering, The Mexica had begun to extend their influence beyond this central basin region. Uh, And so word of the arrival of the early Spanish explorers in the lands of the south, and Yucatan had long ago already reached them. So they're they're well aware that these weirdos in these big boats with beards and shiny metal shit, they didn't even know what metal was necessarily, but shiny shit, um, had landed on their shores. So it's against this backdrop that we will again travel to the fabled city on the lake to catch ourselves up to speed with the Mexica. Uh, in part one of this series, we spent the bulk of the episode exploring the backstory of the various Nahuatl-speaking peoples as they migrated south into the central Mexican basin and then quickly came to dominate the region. Um, I do want to point out uh, before we dive much deeper that we actually had our first major example of a listener of this show kind of reaching out to us. Um, we've done a lot of the reverse and people have been really great about like coming on the show. We've had some really cool guests. We've got more cool guests coming up. Um, but we had a, a really well-versed listener um, out and evan actually does most of our our twitter ing um so he kind of made me aware and was like all right dude this is your stupid shit you deal with us so i ended up getting in touch with them um majora z on twitter they've been a huge help so there are definitely they they collaborated with me a little bit on this episode um you know we're all working people so finding the time for us to all volunteer to work on this shit is is tough but um they do have a ton of notes and addendums particularly on episode one of this show this series um so some of that i might work into the end of this episode some of that might get posted online some of that might get mentioned in a later episode um but there are also some notes that they gave me for this episode so i just wanted to thank them in advance for that um and have you just all be aware like keep your eyes open for for any of that that's coming um So, of these peoples, uh, and central to our narrative, the group that had been uh, become dominant by the time of the early sixteenth century were the Mexica, and they founded their capital Tenochtitlan uh, on an island in the middle of a vast system of lakes. And by the time of our narrative, uh, by the time our narrative returns to them, they had spread out from that sort of central stronghold to exert influence over the other Nahua tribes as well as various other ethnic groups in the central Mesoamerican region so this is where we rejoin them uh the dawn of the 16th century um they are masters over a vast but loosely administered network of uh alte petals which are are city-states but that's the term alte petl alte petals i don't know that's tough Now watch is tough and i'm gonna do my best um, yeah
1: it seems like uh a fucked up way to pronounce that yeah
0: <laughs> um, so while we generally refer to the Mexica hegemony of this period as the, quote, Aztec Empire, um, that's definitely something of a misnomer. Generally speaking, up through this period, the political relationship between Tenochtitlan and their subordinate altepetls was pretty hands-off. Uh, the Mexica would establish dominance over a settlement, either through force of arms or through marriage between noble lineages. That's a big one. Um, and then they would set terms for the offer um, of military aid, material tribute, etc. And then basically leave the conquered, quote-unquote, people to their own devices. Um, they're not, like, occupying cities and shit like that. They just don't have the desire or the manpower for that. So the main goal was to ensure that the Tlatoani um, leading the Alteperl was a loyal was loyal to the chief of Tenochtitlan. Sometimes this was gained through politics um, and more rarely through, like, violent purges and installation of new royal lines. However, uh, among the Nahuatl-speaking tribes, the main way that political alliances were established was through an increasingly complex system of intermarriage between royal families. Uh, As an aside about political marriage, a Tlatoani would generally take many wives, and he would foster tons of children with them. Um, That's just across the board. Yeah, they're doing a lot of a lot of sexy times with these ladies a lot of room for like really high quality like borat voice like yeah very nice very nice <laughs> um still just a good and relevant joke um <laughs> but uh hey man I- i'll have that on my tombstone hell yeah dude well, i'm that just very nice? nice how much or, or
1: it'll just be like two asterisks with borat voice and then it'll just say my
0: wife <laughs> yeah that would be awesome well you should do that if you're if you ever get married and your wife is buried with you that could be like the little you know what i mean
1: yeah if we have a like a
0: mausoleum or something not even you know how like if you look at a lot of old school graves like there's just yeah. like a little headstone and it's just like i just dumped the wife in there with him yeah you know yeah, my
1: wife <laughs>
0: <laughs> um that would rule
1: yeah if, so, I, if i have this big elaborate tombstone with everything carved into it and then right next to it yeah it's a little one that just says borat voice my wife
0: (laughs) i love that um (laughs) so yeah so they would have tons of wives and tons of kids also uh i I didn't find a place to work this in here but there was like a passage that i uh highlighted in the book fifth son um they also did gay shit too like uh, especially men so you know no homophobia invited to the party what'd you say
1: I said get some player.
0: Yeah, exactly. There was this really awesome long story about like a Tlatoani seducing this male dancer that he loved so much because the guy had like Gotten him so excited about the dance that he got up and started dancing. Then he was like, "All right, that ruled. Let's fuck," and uh, kept him as like his 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 partner for like a, not like an official partner, but like kept him around for a while. Um, so if anybody's been wondering, like, yeah, nice like
1: danced his way into some dick.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he did. He danced his way into some pussy And so don't don't convince yourself that. uh that, you know, peoples all over the world haven't been getting fucking freaky for a long-ass time. Um,
1: yeah, there's definitely been some inter-crural, uh stuff going on for a long time. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: And yeah. hopefully for a long time
1: <laughs> For our fans at home uh, that are not as brain poisoned as we are, that's die-fucking
0: yeah no they actually famous among the Greeks I don't know they actually didn't get into that I don't know if it's like well known like what type of penetration they were achieving but they were doing it whatever they were doing it was happening anyway um, I digress Uh, so they also generally in addition to all these wives would have total sexual access to the slaves and servant women in their household Um, and children born of these unions were always considered quote unquote legitimate like the idea of legitimacy wasn't really a thing like among nobles so like for normal average people like yeah you you would generally get in trouble for like uh infidelity and things like that but if you were a Tlatoani like it was expected that you would just marry and you could sleep around and you do whatever you want um the children produced from these various unions did all, uh, despite like all technically being like legitimate children, there were different strata within the royal family um, based on their lineages, who their mother was, um, and then the potential political value to their family um, of these resultant offspring. So, like say a Tlatelolani married another really powerful Tlatelolani's daughter or sister or something, their kids would be ranked higher than any kids that he had with, you know, one of his servants or a wife of lower birth, whatever. Um, They're all technically royals, they're all princesses or whatever you want to call them, princesses, but they're not of the same value in, like, marrying off to other people, and so therefore just not of the same value. Uh, So they would generally marry the daughters of allied or subordinate rivals, and the relative power of the wife's family would generally dictate her rank among the chief's wives and thus the relative likelihood of her sons uh, inheriting power and her daughters being married off to more powerful lords themselves, which is just basically the locus of political power in Mesoamerica at this point in general. Uh, a Tlatuani would, however, usually have one particular wife that was known as like his first or his primary wife. Uh, she was understood to be the mother of his likely heirs and was not necessarily the oldest wife or chronologically the first wife that he took. Uh, Interestingly, this status could also be revoked and transferred to another wife, depending on political expedience, and so the landscape of royal families and marriage alliances was extremely complex and ever-shifting. Suffice it to say, a Tlatuani would have many, many children, uh, basically as a form of political insurance and currency, and without the very European concept of primogeniture, it was never a guarantee that a particular son or male relative would necessarily inherit the throne on the old king or Tlatuani's death. When a Tlatuani did die... What do you say?
1: As currency, huh?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, they they would marry them off to make alliances. Yeah. This was like I'm going
1: to give you this child to fuck off.
0: Yeah. Oh, and you'll see that specific transaction happen later today. We're going to talk about precisely that. Um it's really yeah, it's it's remarkable. I mean, it's not that they didn't love their kids. They actually uh, uh they talk about it in Fifth on a lot how um Aztecs were renowned or Mexica or Nawa peoples in general were renowned for like being really pretty good to their kids, like compared to similar people's, you know, across history in the world. Like they, they obviously really valued their children and gave them really sweet names based on like really pretty things in nature or funny stories that they had in the family, things like that. It was, it was, there was a really loving relationship in most families. Um, but also at the same time, like, especially if you were a Royal, it was understood, especially if you were a daughter that like, you were going to be, like, currency in a trade deal or a, an alliance or whatever at some point in your life. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when a plot 20 did die, factions would generally form uh, among their potential heirs. And depending on the strength of their extended families and other out-the-pets, the intended heir might not always end up uh, on top when the dust settled. Uh, Popular support among the people was also super important um, when deciding who would inherit power, because technically speaking, the title of Tlatuani, while loosely being hereditary, was not necessarily guaranteed to a particular son or relative of the last ruler, and ineffective leadership on the part of of that leader uh, or perceived displeasure of the gods could be grounds for dismissal or revolt or civil war. Uh, the role of a Tlatelwani, and this is really important to our narrative. Actually, all of this that I'm talking about right now, I'm saying it all right now for a reason because it's all going to kind of play into the the overarching narrative of what we're talking about this week. Um, so the role of the Tlatelwani above all else is to preserve and protect the safety of his subjects. And if he could not do this, uh, then he basically forfeited the right to rule. Um, so remember that. All this is to say... Uh, that while the Mexica were the strongest and the most dominant group in the Central Mexican Basin, their say was generally and their say was generally final in most matters, uh, their grip on their rivals and their subordinates was always tenuous and was never understood to be absolute or eternal. Uh, the second that they demonstrated either an inability to maintain control through force or they lost the political capital that they held through strategic intermarriage of royal families, some upstart new power would shift the balance and would immediately just fill the void and take their place. Uh, all of the Alta Perts, including Tenochtitlan, understood this reality, and indeed the Mexica had made many enemies over the last century. They may technically be top dog right now, but political maneuvering, warfare, and betrayal are absolutely the norm in Mesoamerican geopolitics of the day. So in 1502 CE, the new Tlatuani of the Mexica Tenochka, um which are the, the primary group of Mexica based in Tenochtitlan, um, remember there are also the Mexica Tlatelolca who share the island and have that sort of market, um, separate city-state, that by this point is effectively a, a, a part of Tenochtitlan but maintains its independence. They have their own Tlatoani, who's sort of, at this point, just like a, a crony to, to Moctezuma. But um, <clears throat> the new Tlatoani is a man named Moctezuma II. Now, I mentioned above that the royal lineages of Platuani were extremely convoluted, and Moctezuma II was no different. I'm just going to start calling him Moctezuma for the episode, but just keep in mind that we're talking about Moctezuma II. Um, I'm just going to really briefly outline his pedigree here in super broad strokes um, to try and explain why he's super dope and so important, uh, and also how insane it is that this story falls during his reign, because it actually is like a pretty nuts time for everything that's about to happen to happen. Because uh, everyone's expecting this guy to be great and the, the best ruler that the Mexica have seen in a long time. So Moctezuma is the ninth overall Tlatoani of Tenochtitlan. You can check back to part one, which I think is episode 58 of this series, for a quick overview of the foundation of the Alta Petl as an independent power. Um, he's also the sixth Wei Tlatoani, which we roughly translate as emperor. Uh, but basically just means he's like the, the Tlatoani of all Tlatoani. He's the king of kings. Uh, his reign is important for several. Uh, his Im- reign is important because for several generations, the royal line of Tenochtitlan had been split between two factions: uh, descendants of the line of Huitzlihuit and the line of Itzcoatl, uh, two half brothers who had both served as Tlatuani during the previous century, with Itzcoatl uh, generally being regarded as the first of the Hue Tlatuani, or the King of Kings, or Emperor. Uh, we mentioned Itzcoatl in part one. He's the guy who formed the Triple Alliance with Texcoco and Tlacopan uh, that established the start of Tenochtitlan's hegemony in the region. Uh, Itzcoatl was super savvy and was likely a relatively low-born son of his father. Uh, and so, upon succeeding his own half brother um he declared that upon the death of one of uh, upon his death, one of his brother's heirs, not his own, would succeed him. Uh, upon the death of that man, one of Itskuat's heirs would then succeed. So they're going to skip generations with the two lines of this family inheriting and trading off with their own heirs. So they sort of agree that every successive generation would get skipped in the the bid for power. um, So this would ensure theoretically, uh, a peaceful transfer of power and is going to reduce the likelihood of big power struggles and civil wars, at least for a little while, which is pretty impressive. And, you know, it might seem like a simple fix, but this is kind of revolutionary in Mesoamerica, where the norm was, like, when, it, when a tlatoani dies, like, his sons are going to start fucking offing each other. You know what I mean? doesn't always happen, but that's understood to be the case. <clears throat> the Moctezuma II... And his great-grandfather had been Moctezuma I. Um, not to be confused, he's also worth looking into. He was, in his own right, a really great Wei Tlatuani, a conqueror, a warrior, or whatever. Um, but Moctezuma II is important to our story <clears throat> because he, thought, he is thought to have represented a joining of these two lines, and thus could end the constant back and forth and reunite the royal line once again. So it just he he's descended of both Huitzlihuit and um, uh, Itzkoatl. So when he ascends the throne they're like great we can stop doing that dumb shit it's been 75 years like let's just have one royal line again uh his name moctezuma is awesome it means frowns like a lord which just means that he has this fucking angry ass like serious look on his face Uh, Uh, that is a
1: very uh a song of voice and fire
0: name oh dude it rules yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's it's so good this whole story is like as gangster as anything that any fantasy writer could come up with it's yeah. there's so much shit that goes down sir frowns like a lord <laughs> yeah absolutely it's like uh what was it um
1: manderley uh lord to, uh too fat to sit a horse
0: <laughs> oh it's been so long since i've read any of that
1: yeah i mean i read all the books in 2014 and i just remember thinking like all right maybe only like a year or two until the next one
0: yeah, you'll never read it.
1: I yeah, it's never coming. It'll out. never happen.
0: That's at that point, like I I stopped and like I've I've gotten up to through book three twice, and both times, just yeah. like what happened to me with the show, I was just like, you know what, I don't fucking care. I I feel like this is never going to end. I'm never going to yeah. know how this ends. So I just I'm going to stop investing in this. And if yeah. that last book ever comes out, maybe I'll pick it back up again. But like I'm not. Oh gonna- yeah, the
1: seventh one. There's a zero percent chance that one ever gets written. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm sorry, but like that dude's too old and out of shape to, to last much longer. <laughs> but you know, I hope that he did. I hope he lives a long and prosperous life. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's hysterical too, because like
1: the entire run of that show happened before another book was released. Yeah, it happened like in between. The,
0: the, yeah, actually, the last the, one came out after what season one or season oh, two?
1: I thought it was like right at the start of season one. It might have been came out. And it might have been. They did the whole show. <laughs> yeah. They
0: did a whole eight season show. And not even eight consecutive years either. They did it over like eleven years.
1: Uh no, they were definitely consecutive.
0: I thought there was like some big gaps.
1: No, no, yeah. no. They that was uh I mean you can tell that the quality really, really just dipped right at the end. Cause yeah. like the guys were saying that literally it was like a year long job where like the second they finished one season, they had to begin doing a second one.
0: Yeah. Which, you know, I don't blame them for wanting to be done with that. Um, <clears throat> Alright, so <clears throat> so his name means frowns like a lord. Uh, and he had already established himself. He was a, a really great warrior, a great leader of men. And he was also the head priest of uh, Huitzilopochtli, which is the primary god of the Mexica. He's the god of the harvest, but also a war god and the god of corn. And he's important. Um, so then he becomes elected Tlatelani, and everyone's sort of like, yep, this makes sense. He's not like contested, everyone's kind of cool with the idea, they're like, yeah, this guy's gonna be really good. He's a great war leader, he's smart, he's young, he's strong, good, good choice. So his early reign is characterized by continued military expansion to the south, uh, and also by internal restructuring to allow for a greater, greater level of administrative control over the growing area. This chafed up against the established tradition of loose control over the, 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 the empire, whatever you want to call it, by the Mexica, uh, and likely did much to inflame the enemies of the Tenochka against them. Among his reforms uh, were the establishment of 38 initially, later 35, administrative provincial divisions of the empire, which is going to allow for more direct control and easier collection of tribute, movement of troops, uh, transfer of information, you name it. Uh, Basically, every modern political unit has some version of this provinces, states, whatever. Um, And so, this is, you know, a a pretty savvy idea. Let's make administrative units, and that's just going to make everything easier for everyone. Uh, These provinces would then be directly overseen by representatives of Tenochtitlan, um, though maintained by their own local governments in Tlatelani. So, they're not taking over complete administration, uh, but they are sending representatives there to ensure that the laws are followed, the tribute gets sent on time, they're sending the proper amount of levies for war, things like that. And because of this increased administration, Mexica merchants and bureaucrats uh, began settling uh, in foreign altaperts with increasing frequency. And to support these exclaves of subjects, uh, Moctezuma establishes permanent military garrisons along the frontier territories, which is something kind of previously unheard of under Mexica rule. These two innovations strengthened the Tlatoani's ability to receive news quickly from all ends of his domain, and made the mobilization of military campaigns substantially more efficient. It had also become the norm for all children to receive the public temple education we discussed in Part 1, which I, at the time, sort of incorrectly implied was the norm from the get-go. Now, there are still separate schools, uh, the Kalmakak for the nobles, and then I forget the regular temple schools for the the, the commoners, but everyone's getting public schooling at this point. Um, generally, Moctezuma is considered an innovative, strong, charismatic ruler, which stands in sharp contrast to the image that he has come to bear in many modern histories, especially Western histories. Um, you might've heard him called Montezuma, Motecozuma, there's a million ways to say his name. Um, Montezuma's revenge famously being the slang for the diarrhea that, that, uh, Americans get when they go down and visit Mexico because they're not used to the, the microbiome there. Um,
1: yeah. Uh, just imagine that this guy, that's basically his lasting legacy is Americans shitting water when they go to Mexico. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, that being said, he probably would be stoked that it was happening, but he would also probably be like, well, fuck, that's kind of a small consolation for, you know, a few hundred years of garbage. But
1: My people were uh, genocided, but at least those uh, weak uh, Western Europeans shit the ever-loving shit out of themselves. Yeah, yeah he wouldn't be visit. mad about <laughs> it. I
0: just think he'd be disappointed that that was, like, it, you know?
1: Yeah, that that's only a small... That's only it's just one thing yeah Yeah. it's it's there's a good
0: chance especially for our older listeners that that's like how you know who we're talking about um which is a bummer that's a wicked bummer because he was he was the shit he should be remembered as one of like the great rulers of history in a lot of ways but he's not uh so townsend in in fifth son makes mention of a practice that moctezuma was particularly fond of in his quest to strengthen his hold on his allies and subordinates I mentioned earlier in Part 1, Episode 58, that the Aztecs were not quite the bloodthirsty conquerors that we often learn they were. Now, they were super fierce in battle, uh, and they engaged in ritual capture and sacrifice of prisoners of war, to be sure. They did that. Um, and occasionally, as I said, they would just decimate a rebellious royal line in a conquered altepetl. and generally, they preferred more subtle methods than that. They, they didn't like having to like walk in and uh, kill a bunch of people. They would prefer politics or intermarriage, whatever, whenever they could. Um, and while by this time uh, in the early 1500s, the relatively somber and austere human sacrifice regimen in the capital had certainly increased in scale and scope, there's definitely more human sacrifice happening in Tenochtitlan than there was 100 years ago, um, it remains highly ritualized and it lacks the sort of howling, rabid masses, luxuriating in bloodshed that you see in movies um, like Apocalypto, which obviously is about the Mayans, but still, like you get my point. You don't get a lot of movies depicting... Mesoamerica and when you do it's like that savage fucking they're cutting people's hearts out and eating them and that shit. However um, back to the point at hand it would actually have been a really terrifying sight to behold in its own right um, perhaps even more so because rather than this sort of cartoonish spectacle that we see in movies um, it's actually sort of intensely serious and quiet and really austere. Um, so, like I said, Moctezuma, one of his favorite things to do, uh, he would have captives brought to the city from newly conquered territories, right, or territories he was looking to conquer, and he would allow them to bear witness to the sacrifices and also to the massive glory of his city as a whole. It was a, just a sight to behold, even to other Nahua peoples. Tenochtitlan was was insane. It was a global city at this point. Um, and he would then kind of turn these captives loose and let them return home and share the news of these Mexica, who were so ple- who, who so pleased the gods with their great might and their many sacrifices. And generally, this was enough to keep their enemies in line. They just would hear news of how fucking batshit insane Tenochtitlan was. And they were like, all right, like, clearly we're, we just don't stack up. We may as well just fall in line. Um, and apparently, interestingly... One of his favorite times to do this, to have captives brought in to bear witness, uh, was during the month of, and bear with me here, Takashi Puelltli. Wow, I think I came pretty close to getting that in one go. Um, During which prisoners of war would be forced to engage in gladiatorial combat to the death, um, and then all the survivors would just be rounded up and fucking murdered anyway. Uh, Nice. Yeah, dude, it rules. Um, which, I mean, think about, like, what a, what a disheartening thing to see as someone who would potentially become one of those captives, right? Like, the whole point is, like, yeah, we beat you in war, you know, you're gonna survive, but I do want you to see what happens to, like, you know, not the, the guys who aren't so cool. You're cool. But, like, if you weren't cool, if you were less chill, that's what would happen. And then you get to sit and watch these people be forced to, like, spend their last hours fighting to the death, and just to be, like, stabbed to death anyway. Which sucks. Um, So in 1505, in the early part of his reign, there is a corn famine uh, that hits the basin really hard. Uh, it devastates the common people. During this time, it's reported in Nawa sources that Moctezuma and his fellow Tlatoani um, did everything that they could to kind of redistribute food um, throughout all the affected regions. There were also all these really sad stories of families who had too many kids just selling their kids into slavery. A, because they didn't want to watch their kids starve, but B, like they needed the money or whatever to keep their other kids alive or keep themselves alive. Um, and so there are there are all these stories of of Moctezuma and other Tlatelani like hearing about this and and buying those children back and then giving their families food. You know what I mean? So they they were attempting they, they didn't necessarily know how to address the issue um of the famine, you know, they didn't they weren't quite that advanced. They had irrigation, they had things like that, but you know, sort of outside that scope there wasn't this deep understanding of how to you know, affect climate and things like that. So they do what they can given what they have, which is a lot. You know, that's to say they were they were able administrators in every way that they could conceivably be. Um, there were also a few relatively small scale rebellions during his reign, though he did manage to quell these and to maintain order. So one of his most controversial policies uh, is the beginning of separation, more defined separation between nobles and commoners. Uh, in a society that had always allowed like a fairly great degree of movement between those classes. Uh, he was growing wary of the constant struggles of military and merchant elites to break into the noble caste, and also he was likely seeing the potential for trouble with the increasingly large and convoluted royal families that were building up, because remember, I said, royal families just fucking shit out kids like you wouldn't believe, and every kid is legitimate, whether they're from a slave woman or the daughter of a Tlatoani, they're all technically equally likely to inherit. I mean, we mentioned before, Itzcoatl, the first way Tlatoani and Moctezuma's ancestor, was probably the, 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 the son of a slave or a serving woman, right? So it's possible. You can reach the highest level no matter what. Um, <clears throat> so he wants to kind of rein that in. So he begins to restrict uh, employment within government only to highborn children of royal blood. He also begins excluding uh, children of nobles with their slaves and servants from serving in political roles. They're still considered royals, but they're no longer going to be the great war leaders, the, the Tlatoanis, things like that. Um, and as I mentioned, that had always been a part of Mexica culture, so people are kind of chafing against that. So things are stable um, and mostly pretty good if you're a Mexica, especially Mexica-Tenochka. Um, although all the on the frontier are beginning to feel like uh, this Moctezuma guy might have the makings of a bit of a despot. Um, and there is the potential looming threat of food insecurity within the basin. But hey, these don't seem like totally insurmountable issues, right? Well, scary. It, here comes an insurmountable issue. <laughs> it's it's on its way. Ah, man, they always get you. They always get
2: you. I'm going away for a bit when I'm back. Nobody's saying my name on the track. When I get nervous, when I stop murking, scam am five when I'm under attack. Should have thought twice for you, open your trap Coming to a nuclear war, this trap you can tell me to shut up. We'll both say sharp, when I say sharp, I get a plaque. Difference My come no black. Teams in the front row screaming out rap. Hashtag murky2016. Oh, yeah. you thought who's gonna fall back? They think that I get paid in brand new clothes. Like, why would I mug myself? Pass up music, gave me a brand new show, little nigga. I'll plug myself. Plug my scene, plug my guys. This thing's more than a buzz, don't lie. Wanna be a G, roll fox, don't cry. That, storms, that the cunt won't die <laughs> fuck boy soon get hit with the karma leave man pissed like he split with his partner I ain't got a brand new chain or a rollie then I said mum buy a business and gone I'll cop that straight stop that, start that, get that, way. man talk grease but I bet that's fake dumb boy dare never drop no heat therefore I will not check man's tape kick a man's face like on back blacked out Adidas kicks in my combat. please don't put no coke in my cognac uh-huh. rude boy suck your no, mum I ain't on that yeah pull it up rewind it uh-huh. all the gun talk I don't even mind it uh-huh. don't get gas cause you got the headline you only got it cause I declined it uh-huh. lost my Faith and I went to find it never been a flute I came and timed it. Man, in my shop, watch the throne now and if can see me look behind it Pussy. Pussy. Yeah. <laughs> um
0: so the reign of Moctezuma is going pretty well um and for almost 20 years in fact there's a few bumps in the road uh, maybe some folks are feeling like he's getting a little heavy handed but you know it's all for the good of the realm Wh- what do you want you know what I mean we're doing okay considering um <clears throat> Well, the little hiccups certainly won't be enough to to threaten this stability. Um, That is, unless some catastrophic and unforeseen event were to take place that would expose weaknesses within the realm and invite hastening disaster to overtake everything and bring the entire social and political order crashing down, which would be funny if that were to happen,
1: theoretically. Yeah, yeah, would this be the arrival of a bunch of mustachioed freaks from
0: across the ocean? (laughs) You know, that's a good guess. We'll find out. (laughs) That's a very good guess, though. Uh, really good. <laughs> um, uh,
1: almost, almost, actually, shockingly good.
0: Shockingly good, considering it. it's almost like. Have you heard? Have you heard this before?
1: Hey, have you got peanuts? Have you heard about
0: peanuts? <laughs> you, you heard about these? <laughs> they, they,
1: they come from, the from Cuba. ocean, You know? Have you seen? Have you heard about this?
0: You know? I tell you what, those Cubans—they've always been a threat to the Americans. I'll tell you what—it's just really, it's clearly they've been fermenting dissent for, for centuries. <laughs> have you guys heard about my classic cars? They love classic cars in Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> Um. So about a decade into his reign, Moctezuma began receiving disturbing reports from the land south of his domain. Apparently, several large seagoing ships had arrived, bearing strange, hairy, light-skinned men speaking a, a harsh, foreign tongue. Uh, they had exquisitely strong weapons and armor and had engaged oh, in trade.
1: Okay, I gotta push back against the harsh-sounding tongue. The
0: Portuguese sucks. Okay. Liz- I, I'm just saying. That ain't yeah, a pretty but, I mean, language.
1: I, I'm sorry, but, like, these words that you're pronouncing, that's harsh-sounding.
0: I don't know. I, I Dude, I love Nahuatl, <laughs> and I'm not good at it, but I, I love yeah. it. I think it's such a cool language. Yeah. Yeah, okay, but, Okay. If, you well, know. you know. <laughs> but then you have the God's tongue,
1: you know, Portuguese, or the lesser uh, version of it, Spanish, too. Yeah, but, no, you know. Spanish is
0: nice, I will say. Spanish is nice. But to, to the <laughs> ears, I am more yeah. mean... Evan, okay, that to the ears of the Mexica, Spanish sounds like fucking what? Like, what are these people doing? This doesn't sound good. This sounds fucking crazy, you know? I demand
1: the Iberians get their due, their day in court.
0: Alright, well, we'll we'll see what we can do on the next episode of Aztec Court. Um... <clears throat> so they have these really awesome, super strong weapons and armor. They've had some trades, some clashes with the indigenous peoples who were mostly Mayan people. But there were some Nahua peoples by this point, like, colonizing down on the Gulf Coast and towards Yucatan. Um <clears throat> Initial reports suggested that fighting these foreigners resulted in casualties which were just far higher than any Mesoamerican peoples would be accustomed to in conflict. Because like I've mentioned, like the main goal of conflict of warfare is the, the taking of captives. They're not used to like massacring one another. You know, they also just don't have the technology to do it. They don't have crossbows, they don't have swords. You know, it's it's just less possible for them to inflict these massive de- plus also, like, why would they want to? They don't want to destroy civilization, they don't conquer in the same sense that the europeans do so it's all very shocking the reports are very shocking um arrows and war clubs would not penetrate their armor they also rode these massive fearsome beasts into battle these giant kind of dog looking things giant animals with hooves but they never seen them here and so obviously those are horses but they freaked the fuck out of the people in the americas these are the first horses in america which is insane yeah you know
1: that must definitely be like a brain melting experience dude can you imagine just a cavalry charge happen and you're just like what the fuck
0: right like your first experience with horses is always going to be wild right but imagine yeah. you don't know they exist and then imagine that immediately after seeing them they're used to kill you like it's not even like you have this peaceful like you know Uh, Lisa Frank, I almost said Anne Frank. You remember those Lisa Frank fucking (laughs) folders with, like, the dolphins and the horses and shit? Yeah, oh, of course I do. Yeah, it's not like, that's not what it's like for the people of the Americas when they first see horses. They see scary horses covered in armor that are being used to, like, cavalry charge them. It's fucked.
1: Well, so that's funny, because, like, I thought, um, there's this prehistoric bird, uh, it's, like, very much, like, in between, like, a dinosaur and, like, modern birds, but, like, it straight up was, like, big enough that they used to, like run around and eat horses.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I thought that was in the Americas, well, but it must not be. W- no, so it was. So the interesting thing about horses and camels and a lot of these, um, a lot of the odd and even-toed ungulates is that they actually ar- originally evolved in the Americas, and then subpopulations of them crossed the land bridge that existed between uh, Asia and North America, which connected basically Alaska to, to Siberia. And... Established populations in the old world, and then due to climate shift, uh, different megafauna, et cetera, they went extinct here. And then those subfamilies continued to thrive and evolve in the new world, in the old world. And so those became modern horses, modern camels, a lot of different animals uh, that then went extinct here. So yeah, horses. It, it's very interesting. They did originally evolve here, and then went extinct here, and only existed in the old world. And then were brought back centuries later. Uh, or thousands and thousands and thousands, millions of years later, by yeah. people from Europe. So it's kind yeah, of I'm a looking cool. At right you know.
1: now, these things are fucking insane.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is it? A terror bird? Yeah. Oh, that sounds cool. I don't know what the yeah. fuck it is, but it sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, dude. They just like ran around and stripped like eight horses. I suggest
0: dude. people go and look
1: it up because there's cool pictures of them just like plucking horses from the ground. That's rules. funny.
0: I like that very much. <laughs> a terror bird. Good name. Um, so, yeah, so they have horses, and they're scary. Uh, so word of all this reaches Tenochtitlan, and Moctezuma is reasonably quite disturbed. Uh, His people were the strongest warriors in the basin, of course, but by all accounts, this new foe was something else entirely. Uh... Modern historians have loved at this point to begin painting Moctezuma as a coward who was suitably uh, cowed into submission by the obviously superior Europeans who would spend the next few years ineffectually quaking in his boots and, and preparing to hand his kingdom off to these conquerors. In reality, it appears that nothing could be further from the truth. You see, as I had mentioned earlier, the first and the last responsibility of a good Tlatoani was the safety and continued prosperity of his people. Uh, Some huge foreign threat rampaging through the countryside would, of course, pose a massive threat to the peace and stability of the Waitlatoani of the Mexica, uh, who had worked tirelessly for a century to establish this peace. So, uh, Moctezuma... Uh, Just a
1: uh, a quick interjection. Sure. I sent you a little thing in the the chat.
0: Yeah, cool. Chat, chat, chat. What is this, the terror bird? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Look at that fucking thing. That's sick. So, for those of you at home, it's, like, a big... It's It's got short little stubby wings. It looks like a big kind of flamingo-headed chicken. And it's got a whole-ass horse in its mouth. So, this thing must be, what, like, 12 feet tall?
1: Yeah, yeah, they were huge. It's definitely yeah. uh, one of the transition things, I believe, from, like, obviously, like, a T-Rex... Yeah. to the modern chicken.
0: Yeah, it does it looks like a big T-Rex but with feathers and instead of little hands it's got stubby little wings. Yeah, and
1: it's got a beak
0: and mean eyes. Yeah. It looks pretty scary. Cool. Awesome. Look up the terror bird, guys. You guys will love it. Uh anyway, where was I? Okay. Um <clears throat> So in reality, uh, even though everybody loves to or has loved for the last couple hundred years to paint Moctezuma, as this really like scared pussy asshole, in reality, it appears that nothing could be further from the truth. So, as I mentioned earlier, the first and the last responsibility of a good Tlatuani was the safety and the continued prosperity of his people. Some foreign threat rampaging through the countryside would, of course, uh, pose a massive threat to the peace and the stability of the way Tlatuani of the Mexi- um <clears throat> And I think I already read this. Whatever. He established peace and it lasted forever. I'll come back and edit that part out. And so. <laughs> Where were we? So, uh, Moctezuma enacted a policy of intense information gathering. He's receiving near-constant updates on any comings and goings associated with these newcomers to the south. Uh, If they warred with or if they allied with anyone, he wanted to know, and the results of these dealings would also be made known to him. He would, in the meantime, drill his men, shore up his defenses, and work to strengthen the bonds between Tenochtitlan and her allies. In the event that these foreigners arrived in the central basin, uh, Moctezuma knew that he could not allow the Mexica-Tenochka to appear weak before their subordinates. Such weakness in the near-constant struggles of the basin would serve as a death sentence for the young empire and undo all that Moctezuma and his forebears had worked so hard to build. Uh, this would be, of course, perfectly natural to expect, though this did not mean that he would be willing to accept such events as a blind eventuality. Now, Let's fly. Let's get on our magical podcast wings with our historical little engines and start them up. And we're going and we're just gonna fly across Mesoamerica and we're gonna rejoin our old buddy Hernan Cortes.
1: All right, let me just start mine up right
0: here. Ding 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 crazy frog, dude. <laughs> Oh, that sucks!
1: Yeah, uh, just gas this bad boy. Ring up ding, today. ding 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 ding. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> ring ding ding, ding, ding. Oh, fuck! Now I gotta put
0: that stupid ass song in the show. Um, whatever, whatever. It's fine. Um, so on February tenth, fifteen nineteen, remember, uh, Cortez's expedition had departed Cuba under super not entirely legal circumstances. Uh, he kind of pulled a fast. Uh, it one. was
1: very cool and very legal.
0: I will make it legal. Um, so not not super chill uh, circumstances. <clears throat> um, he'd sort of done like a last minute, I guess, sort of escape almost. Uh, he pretends to miss a letter from the Cuban governor that forbids them from carrying out the planned campaign into Mexico. Uh, the trip by ship from Cuba to Mexico only took about 10 days under prime conditions. So it's not like some massive overseas voyage uh, much closer than it would be to come all the way from Spain. Uh, and previously, uh, two different guys named Francisco de Córdoba and Juan de Grijalva had previously landed on the Gulf Coast of Yucatan in 1517 yeah, and those in 1518, are nice names. respectively. They are great names. Yeah, Juan Cordoba? de Grijalva, I mean, that's a great name. Yeah, Grijalva and Córdoba. De Córdoba. Um, <clears throat> so the general route from the Indies to, uh, to Mexico is established. So the initial arrival of Cortez's expedition was met with hostil- hostility by the coastal Potoncan people, uh, likely due to previous experiences with Spanish expeditions. Uh, the Potoncans were a Maya people, um, though they had contact with the Nawa people to the north and the west. Now, this is the first of a few... Additions that our friend Majora Z has sort of added to the notes. I'm not going to list all of them every time I mention them, but again, I just want to sort of give them credit for hopping on and like taking a look at our our notes and giving us some little additional things that either I wasn't able to pick up in my research, just because like the scope of this was already massive for me, or like just things that they thought that I should add. So um, they really wanted me to make mention of the fact that Potong Khan was actually like a pretty decently sized city. A lot of people have this idea that. Um, the Mayans of this period were so vastly diminished from their classical period, which had actually ended a few hundred years prior, um, and had lasted for like a thousand years. The classical Maya period was, was massive and took, you know, lasted a really long time. Um, but a lot of the sources point to Potong and there are a lot of other cities being pretty large with like thousands of homes and really decorated courtyards and, um, you know, they just wanted me to mention that like the Mayas were still like a pretty fabulous civilization in their own right, even though they had declined somewhat from their 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 height. <clears throat> um, they also, as I said, had contact with the the Nahua peoples to the north and to the west. The Spanish described upon trying to get from their their big boat in their little boat to the shore. Uh, being beset by arrows from the shore and men in canoes almost as soon as they attempted to, to reach the shore. Um, and they had to sort of wade in under fire from arrows and spears and and fight their way to the shore. But as soon as they were on the shore, their steel and iron weapons sort of allowed them immediately to establish a beachhead and hack through the wooden defenses placed by the Potonkan. Uh, they skirmished with the locals, and, uh, They skirmished with the locals over the course of several days, inflicting massive casualties before the Potonkan realized that they could not sustain a fight against this foe, despite superior numbers and knowledge of the terrain. And so the Potonkan sued for peace. Uh, As part of their peace accord, the Potonkan offered slaves to the Spaniards, um, with captives being one of the primary purposes for warfare among the Maya, much like the Nahua. Uh, This would have seemed like a very reasonable exchange and is likely what the Potonkan assumed the Spaniards were after in the first place. Um, Another little addendum here... uh, The giving of slaves, which I may have sort of inappropriately mentioned in episode one, was generally a a common, um, like, spoil of war or a condition of surrender, but would very rarely be part of annual tribute, which was usually more material. Um, That was super rare among the Maya and uh, uh, the Aztec, but, but definitely was less of a thing among the Aztecs um this would likely have seemed like a perfectly reasonable exchange to the potocan um it's probably what they assumed the spaniards were looking for in the first place because why else would you make war if not to like get captives or whatever they just weren't really used to the idea that like these guys were coming here to try to like establish a permanent base and like colonize it just wasn't really a thing you know they were just like okay y- you won here's some people and anything else we can do for you or are you gonna like leave because
1: yeah and the spanish were just like our tastes are a little bit more, uh, they're a little bit different than that. We actually just want to destroy this entire place for money.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <coughs> yeah. Um, so Among the Slaves was a woman of extreme importance to the remainder of our narrative, both this episode and the next however one more um she was a captured nahua woman likely of noble birth uh highly educated from a settlement sort of on the periphery of the mexica empire um most modern sources sort of uh, uh, i guess err on the side of assuming that they were not yet under the control of tenochtitlan um but there could have conceived i mean some people in the book fifth son which i'm reading they talk about the fact that um they had been under Mexica dominion and so that that this person likely had a certain disdain for the Mexica um that's mentioned in some other sources but that's like not totally agreed upon um suffice it to say that this was a Nawa woman who was now found now found herself in captivity um in this sort of weird and unique situation where they become incredibly valuable um and a huge part of the historical narrative Um, if they were to continue expanding at the rate that they were at the periphery of their realm, right? So what's peaceful at the center of quote-unquote empire is always sort of the opposite of the case at the fringes of empire, um, where the conquest itself and the wars are happening. So... In this part of the the sphere of influence that the, the Mexica are building, people are very accustomed to brutality, to conflict, to captives being taken, to their homes being invaded. Um, and so regardless of the state of this person, this woman who's been captured she's likely aware that the Mashika pose some sort of cultural threat, right? They are a warring people, right? These people have not, out on the fringes, have not forgotten that. They've not been living in 75 years of relative peace and prosperity like the people in the Central Basin have. They're out on the frontiers, and they're dealing with the harsh realities of the fact that the Mashika, to keep the engines of their empire running, are forced to wage constant war. They're forced to take captives. They're forced to constantly be proving their military might to the people around them, because if they don't, as with any powerful civilization in this part of the world at this time, someone else will step in and challenge them for supremacy. If you're not constantly sharpening the per- proverbial sword of state, someone's going to look over and say, looks pretty looks pretty weak over there. I'm going to step in and, and try them. And the meshika don't even want to bother with that. So they're constantly, constantly, constantly fighting and scrapping just to show you don't want to fuck with us. Um, <clears throat> so this woman... Uh, whose given name has been lost to Western history, was baptized and given the name Marina by the Spanish. Nominally, uh, conversion of the native populations of the New World, which we mentioned in uh, episode one and episode two, was of paramount performance to the Spaniards. It was, at the very least, uh, the mayor in which that they had entreated the Pope to gift them their half of the pie in the Treaty of Tortesillas, see part two, episode 61. Uh, However, like most elements of conquistador expeditions, the true motivations were much less savory. In short, the good Catholic men of the expedition would feel much better about raping fellow Catholics. So, they baptize any women they get pretty much immediately. Uh, So, baptism is a must. Cortes himself would chose Marina as his personal concubine or woman. Uh, And so, the Spanish in the force would refer to her as Doña Marina, Uh, And this would later develop into Malina to Nahuatl speakers, uh, since that rolled R sound in Marina is tough, and so to them they hear Malina. Um, And so that in turn becomes Malintin with the suffix tin, much like the prefix doña in Spanish, uh, signifying that a person is of noble standing. So really you can read it as, you know... Lady Malina, Lady Malinsin. Um, you'll also see her referred to as Malinche a lot because that's sort of then the way. So the Spanish then hear Malincin and they have a hard time with the tsin. So then they say Malinche. So her name has just gone through all these different variations. So sometimes you'll hear Malinche, Malinsin. Uh, in the book Fifth Son, she's pretty much exclusively referred to as Malincin. So that's what I'm going to stick with here. But just know that all of these names are totally legit and valid. And we don't even know what her real name was anyway. So. It sucks because we can't call her by what she was actually called. Now, Malintzin, she spoke both Nahuatl and Yucatec Mayan, which is going to be really important really shortly. Um, Also, the expedition had at some point around the time of their arrival rescued a Spanish Franciscan friar named Jerónimo de Aguilar, who had been shipwrecked among the Yucatan Maya in 1511, so like eight years ago, and had spent the whole last eight years sort of becoming fluent in Yucatec Mayan language. Father Aguilar had heard a rumor that uh, a bunch of bearded men were staying near the Potonkan and assumed that they were fellow Spaniards and so had made his way through the jungle uh, and got there and and joined the expedition. So the ability to communicate through these two people would allow for communication with most native peoples of the region, who generally had at least some working knowledge of either Nahuatl or Yucatec Mayan, or both, because they're both the major trade languages of this Mesoamerican region. Now, obviously, there are tons of different dialects and language families present in the region, but people were more likely to have some knowledge of one or both of these languages than Spanish, which, as I said, was just totally alien to them. So they would communicate to, uh, to Father Aguilar in Spanish. He would then translate Spanish into Yucatec Mayan to Malinsin, who would then translate Yucatec Mayan into Nahuatl when speaking with any Nahuatl speakers, um, which is just bananas. She's also going to start learning Spanish because she's spending a lot of alone time with Hernán Cortés. So she becomes clearly like the most valuable translator.
2: Relevant, frivolous, gentleman with ten bitches I finger do ten of them, prick ten stitches I splitted his melanin and it worked nothing to do with this his melanin Brick my brother then spits with bedding and sticks of adrenaline Dippers swelling and mischief, bobbing and swift and menacing Oh my God, he can't take my reddering oh. Reddering, that sounds threatening, very unsettling Somebody get him some ketamine, settling, him down and heckle him And I got a big face, kettle all metal, no bezelin. Never done banking, scams embezzling Run up on him on the main road, no peddling Telling him, stop being feminine Mind your business, bitch, stop meddling Oopsie daisy, better than Jaycee
0: so the expeditionary force then decides to march inland to find the central mexican basin which has been confirmed by the indigenous peoples of the yucatan uh, as where the center of wealth and power is now in mexico and they're of course talking about tenochtitlan so that's where they're headed Um, I think that this is a really good place to make a sort of brief aside about the response of native peoples to the Spaniards and their desire to reach Tenochtitlan. So if you've spent any time at all learning about this story, whether it's in grade school or on your own or whatever, you've likely come across the notion that to these primitive quote-unquote people, uh, the Spaniards with their horses and their gunpowder and their steel and their pale skin, thick beards, they sound weird, must have naturally seemed like gods and thus been feared and honored as such. Did you ever learn that? Um I'm not sure I ever learned that they
1: were treated like gods, no.
0: Well that really that has been the prevailing narrative for a really long time in Western history that like when they showed up, the 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 people were so amazed by like the gunpowder and everything that they were like, Whoa, these must be gods. Um Townsend and pretty much any modern historian with their salt roundly reject this idea. Now it probably wouldn't, and this is the take that Townsend makes, and there are other takes here, but it wouldn't necessarily, according to Townsend, make theological sense in the context of the religious beliefs of either the Nawa or the Mayan religions. Um, she claims that they don't really place any emphasis on gods sort of transmuting into human form and visiting the earth. Um, there are accounts uh, that that kind of directly contradict this. Um such as uh, there are Nahuatl accounts of the god Tezcatlipoca transforming into a person to tempt the the earlier Toltec rulers. And that's sort of part of the story of uh, the Toltec cities falling prior to the expansion of the Aztecs into their territory. If you'll remember, we mentioned in part one of this series that the Toltecs were the the civilization that had previously dominated the central Mexican basin. Um, But, you know, their uh, accounts defer to this, so we don't really know. Um, But there is this sort of claim that gets tossed around that that they thought that Cortez must have been uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl, you know, this, the rainbow serpent in human form, because there was like this prophecy of him having pale skin and coming to Earth as a man and whatever. And that's all made up. Um, it's all kind of just racist garbage. Um Second, there are plenty of reliable first and secondhand accounts of this time in both Spanish and Nahuatl, and none of them, except for one, really mention this being what they thought when the Spanish arrived. Um, and that one is based on stuff that Cortez himself wrote, which was likely a combination of, like, misunderstandings and uh, uh, mistranslations and things like that. So it's, it's not really considered factual by anybody that anybody in the new world thought that the spanish were gods they could tell pretty pretty immediately that they were people um there's also an incident that's kind of well written about and documented that you know when cortez eventually meets moctezuma right spoiler alert that's going to happen at some point today in our story moctezuma shows his bare chest to show him his skin to say look like just like you, I'm just a mortal man, and that apparently was because Moctezuma was worried that the Spanish would think he was a god because of everything they'd heard about him. So, you know, it's 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 anyone's guess, but it seems pretty clear that everyone involved was aware that everyone else involved was a person. <laughs> you know, they might have different stuff, but it was yes, just people uh, killing people. Bl- blessed with uh, the ability of you know
1: reasoning. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that. That. Again, uh, basically. Hammer home, like, yeah. Yeah, that like basically everybody uh, has, they were probably able to see that like, nope, these are just uh, people with really good armor.
0: Yeah, right. Bearing like serious mental illness, uh, you're not really going to make the mistake that a person is, is a god or some alien or some shit. Um, Townsend also makes the argument, which I find sound, uh, that, you know, these people were obviously, as Evan's saying, extremely intelligent and pragmatic. Um, they had centuries of experience with warfare and with invasion. That was their whole way of life in a lot of ways. So they would have recognized that the Spangers were just men who wanted the same basic things that men always do when they choose to make war, like tribute, women, land, whatever. But whatever it was, it wasn't anything holy or anything from the heavens. It was just people making war on each other. Same as always. And if, on top of that, these people had some sick weapons that were clearly made out of insanely strong material or whatever, it's not like they got these through magic. They were just good at making stuff, you know? The Aztecs were better at making stuff than a lot of the other peoples around them, so they knew that there must be people elsewhere that are better than us at the same thing. So, no surprises there. All in all, I just want to hammer home that, like, the, the, the Mexica, the native approach to the Spanish throughout this entire scenario is super pragmatic, and at no point are they, like, wowed by anything when they eventually, fighting, eventually fight one another you know, the Aztecs try to take their weapons and use them themselves, they know they're not magic, they know that there's no special thing there, like, they're like, fuck if only we could figure out how to use these cannons, if only we could figure out how to make these swords, we're just as good at fighting if not better than they are fuck, like, if only we had this stuff, you know Um, Also important, I want to reiterate a previous point about the relationship between the Mexica and their allies slash subordinates in relation to the larger landscape of Mesoamerican geopolitics. Uh, we refer now to an Aztec empire because that's the quick and easy way to describe a polity that was in reality uh, much more varied and complex. So to put it simply and bluntly, even though Moctezuma was making moves to solidify his control over the territory under Mexica influence, this is a relatively new and actually fairly unprecedented uh, policy in this era. And so while the Mexica might be the big altepetl on campus right now, it's always understood by all parties involved um, that this is a transient state and could and likely would change at some point. So when other groups with the Mexica sphere or without would see these newcomers looking to march on Tenochtitlan um there would have been a suitably varied response but nobody would have seen that as like ridiculous or unprecedented or like an act of the gods or like oh no there's vengeance these people are coming and they want to make war on the other strong people around like no they're strong so of course they're going to want to fight the other strong guys because that's what any strong tribe or state or anything would do, right? Like, so nobody's surprised that this happens. They see this new group, these Spanish people arrive. They have all this good shit. They're really good at fighting. The natural inclination is like, oh, man, I wonder if they're going to challenge Tenochtitlan. Like, of course they're going to. You know what I mean? There's nothing really wild there for any of these people. Um, there also would have been plenty of states around who would have seen the advantage in siding with either side pretty much immediately. So it's not like some... There's no unified sense of being Mexican or being indigenous right it's the spanish are just new players entering this game that's been going on for thousands of years there's no universal love for them or hate for the mexica whatever everybody's got their own history and they're all just kind of looking to get ahead or stay alive or stay relevant so cortez is going to now march his men up the coast and establish a base colony called villa rica de la vera cruz uh not too far from the city city state of cempoala uh, or Kempoala. I'm not really sure if they pronounce the C or the the, the K on that. But whatever. No idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is the capital of the Totonac Confederacy. Now, the Totonac... Had no love for Tenochtitlan, uh, positioned as they were right in the danger zone at the edge of the empire, um, and they were recently brought under Mexica sovereignty. So they agreed to ally with the Spanish at least long enough to escort them inland to the valley of the Mexica and potentially to join them in a war uh, should it come to that. Now, this is the first really good example of an indigenous people recognizing an opportunity in the coming of the Spanish to exert themselves on their enemies. Because, like I said, everybody has their own relationships with each other. There's all these interstate wars and all these old grudges dating back, you know, hundreds of years, whatever. So they see the, the Spanish and they say, oh, so you guys are looking for, for Tenochtitlan. And so there's this story that they then pointed to this uh, this city-state, <clears throat> called, uh, let me try to get this right, called Tsimpancinco, right, which is just an existing city-state, and it's it's uh, uh, one of <clears throat> the, ca- the other capitals of, like, a rival royal family in the Totonac Confederacy, they point to that and they say, oh, that's an Aztec fort, you should go conquer it, because if you don't, then they're going to try to attack you. And so what they do, they convince the Spanish to, like, march into this city full of unsuspecting people and basically just fucking, like, burn it to the ground and fucking defeat them. In reality, it's just a, a totally unrelated rival of this existing city-state. And they just got the Spanish to, like, wipe them out by just saying, yeah, they're going to attack you. You should go kill them. And the Spanish are like, okay. And so they do. And, like, boom. Like, all right. So the Teutonic are, like, awesome. These guys are super strong. We're going to side with them. No problem. Um, <clears throat> so... They're going to march inland. They're going to kind of lead them towards Tenochtitlan. And so on the march inland, the Spanish encounter Tlaxcala, uh, another uh, more uh, – another Nahua state that the, the Mexica had a, a contentious relationship with. Um, <clears throat> and so we don't know necessarily the nature of that relationship um they were likely not a subordinate state or a client state, but at the very least, they were kept under blockade by Tenochtitlan um, for Flower Wars. Do you remember Flower Wars? Uh, Remind me. So Flower Wars are like, and we talked about this in part one, they're like ritualized wars between city states where the goal is like not conquest it's it's just exchange of captives yeah, basically yeah, 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 yeah. and yeah. so obviously like the mexica always come out on top and like take more captives but they also like understand that some of their people will get taken too and it just sort of keeps everyone happy because they have they're able to sort of meet this whatever you want to call it quota of captives that they need to like keep the the functions of state running and make enough uh, make enough sacrifices it's also probably worth noting um <clears throat> that kala was actually a republic uh with both commoners and nobles engaging in a senate which is kind of cool um there it's uh, just to display that like not every Nawa state has the same political structure they don't all have like just like a, a hereditary Platowani or monarchical structure um <clears throat> But yeah, uh, apparently Cortes also found this state, like, really beautiful and, like, lovely and clean and nice, and uh, and Majora Z sent us a little quote here that I'm going to read from Cortez himself. "'The city is indeed so great and marvelous, though I abstain from describing many things. The little I recount is incredible. It is much larger than Granada, and better fortified. Its houses are as fine and its inhabitants far more numerous. Its provisions and food are likewise very superior.' There are gold, silver and precious stones and jewelers shops selling other ornaments made of feathers as well as arranged as in any market as well arranged as in any market. There is earthenware of many kinds and excellent quality as fine as any in Spain. Wood, charcoal, medicinal and sweet-smelling herbs are sold in large quantities. There are booths for washing your hair and barbers to shave you. There are also public baths. Good order and an efficient police system are maintained. They behave as people of sense and reason. Um, yeah, that's just like... <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought it was really good. And he was like, you don't have to... They were like, you don't have to use that whole quote. But I really like that quote, so I read the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> so, the Flash the Tlashkalteka, the people of Tlashkala, oh my God, I'm really struggling with these. The the people of Tlashkala, um, having been in constant communication with Moctezuma, uh, had been warned of this potentiality and had received instruction from Tenochtitlan. Um, in no uncertain terms, uh, these foreigners are not to be allowed entry into the Central Basin. So they're not not—they're not his inferiors, but he has said to them, like, I don't want them in here. And, like, if you don't want me to fucking jump on you, you better make sure that these motherfuckers don't make it into the Central Basin. Now, this is also, like, a point of contention, because there is this second contemporary approach that Moctezuma was similarly manipulating the arrival of the Spanish, just like everyone else, to his own gain. And that he wanted them to come through, and he wanted them to decimate his rivals. For example, Tlaxcala was potentially a rival, did not like them, whatever. Um, And so he wasn't afraid necessarily of the Spaniards arriving, but instead was trying to kind of guide them into the the heartland. That's an an alternate source. The main source I used doesn't sort of subscribe to that um, and sort of talks more about the pragmatic approach. Like, yeah, we kind of don't want them to come here. I'm, I'm not a coward, but I'm also not stupid, and I don't necessarily want these Spaniards coming and fucking up everything I've built. But um, some people think that uh, that Moctezuma was playing the game just like everyone else. The truth is in there somewhere, right? And so we kind of just have to go with what we've got. But I like to assume that it's somewhere in the middle and that you know, Moctezuma was a smart and a savvy leader who understood the realistic situation at hand here. And, uh, you know definitely was trying to make the most of something potentially shitty so he's receiving like near constant updates on the spanish and he's aware that the casualties that they're capable of inflicting in an open conflict are are just prohibitive to making war a good idea he no matter what he definitely knows that he doesn't want to go up against them head to head because like it's just the the out the outcome of that is just so uncertain um but and what's crazy too is
1: that this was like a really small expeditionary force of the yeah. Spanish, right? Like 500, I think you Yeah, said. 500
0: total and like not all of those are necessarily like fighting men. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they had like something like 13 horses. Um you know, it, it's not like this is some huge force of people. It, they're just really they're well just
1: equipped. And yeah. any natives that they come into contact with.
0: Yeah, up until now they're 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 not really encountering any meaningful resistance now that's going to change a little bit here um, but not a ton so as I've mentioned before like appearing supremely powerful is one of the main hinge points for continued Mexica control over their territory Montezuma Moctezuma understands that um, he also knows that there are plenty of disgruntled client states, but also rival states that he's engaging in warfare and trade and things like that with. Um, and so everybody's kind of watching to see how, how the great way Tlatwani is going to handle this situation. So he can't panic. He's not going to rush to like mobilize an army to like march out to meet them. Um, he has to sort of act with measured confidence. So that's exactly what he does. He asks this sort of weaker state, you know, and says like, like, yeah, you should, you should make sure that they, you keep them away. And, um, You know, at least initially, that's A going to allow him to see how the Spanish stack up against a more powerful state like Clashcala, who are much more powerful than anyone they've fought before. It's also going to help him keep that altapetl in line, right? Like, if Clashcala gets knocked down by the Spanish, great. That works out for him, too. Um, And now he's going to have a better idea of, like, how they fight against, like, a relatively large, mobilized Nahua military force. Um, Meanwhile, Cortez is learning just as much from Malinsin, who... Uh, is beginning. he's beginning to realize her political value. Um, she must be relatively well-educated in the protocols of warfare and politics because she's able to kind of help broker that alliance that they have now formed with the Totonac Confederacy. Um, the Totonac were also able to teach Cortez a bit about Nawa tactics and equipment. They're also warning him, you're entering Tla- Tlaxcala territory now. Um, they're not necessarily allied with the Mexica, but they're also not going to like you tramping through their countryside. So like, you need to be prepared. There's a good chance you're going to get ambushed. And they get ambushed. So in early August, the Tlaxcala send out an expeditionary force, and they're just trying to figure out, like, who are we up against right now? So they jump them, and the Spaniards are surprised, but they they fight them off pretty effectively. Um, They lose two horses, and they don't really keep track of native casualties in any of their accounts. So, like, of course they don't. Um, So we don't really know how many Totonac are killed, but we know that no Spanish people are killed. Two horses are killed, um, which sucks. You know, they only have 13 of them, but... uh, they repel the attack. So for the next, like, two weeks uh, in early September, the two forces are engaging in in guerrilla warfare. Uh, the Tlaxcalteca are harassing the Spanish baggage train, and the Spaniards are responding by massacring every Tlaxcaltec village they pass. Um, eventually, the Tlaxcalteca realized that they could not sustain casualties of this magnitude and continue to function as an independent society, so they, too, sue for peace. Um <clears throat> It's also, it should be noted that a lot of modern historians uh, argue that this was probably much more of an even struggle um, than a lot of contemporary sources would have claimed. Cortez definitely didn't want to admit that he was, like, down and out fighting these fucking native people in the jungles, right? Like, so he obviously, a lot of the, the narrative that we have comes from him, where he paints it as this, like, yeah, it was tough, it was two weeks, whatever, but keep in mind, like, prior to this, Nobody else had really lasted a day against them. And these people kept them fighting and struggling for two straight weeks, a little longer, like marching through the jungles of of, of central Mexico. Um, that's no small thing. The fact that these people armed with, you know, wood and obsidian weapons and arrows and shit, they, they fought off a Spanish invasion force for, for weeks, which is pretty wild. Um, <clears throat> uh, some people even claim that, like, if, if the Clash Calteca hadn't realized how expedient it would be to, like, not suffer all these casualties and offer an alliance, they might have stopped the Spanish right then and there. It's, like, possible. Um, either way, you're going to recognize this, this willingness to sue for peace by by Nahua peoples as a really common tactic, um, especially when facing foes like the Spanish, mainly because, like we've said, like, the Spanish are capable of inflicting really massive casualties, and the goal of warfare among the Mesoamerican people is not... To fucking wipe each other out, right? Like, what's the point of that? They don't want to genocide their enemies. Yep. So they also, you know, a good Platawani, his job is to keep his people safe and alive. And if all your people died so that you could win a fucking battle, well, you're kind of out of a job, aren't you? Like, you don't really. What's the point? Right. It's like a pyrrhic victory, and that just seems stupid. That doesn't make sense to Mesoamerican people and and indigenous people of the Americas in general. You know, that was a big downfall for the plains natives of the United States. Uh, when they were fighting the U.S. government, you know, they were not used to fighting these massive wars where the goal was extermination. They just didn't do that. Didn't make sense. So anyway, Um, historians and the Spanish love to look at this, the fact that they would always quote unquote, like give up or like surrender, which is what it looked like to the Spanish. And they call that cowardice or just, you know, an unwillingness to meet the might of the Spanish military force. Um, but again, it's, it's really just pragmatism. Um, so the Spanish also, they did suffer in this protracted conflict, no matter who you ask. Um, they claim to have lost half their cavalry and a fifth of their men, which again, that's not accounting for native losses of their allies. Um, but they'd only sit out with like 500 men and 13 horses. So, you know, we're not talking about like uh, a huge army here. Um, and so to take even one fifth losses is pretty immense. Uh, on equal footing, if they had the same weapons, they would certainly have just been fucking destroyed. right? And that's something that you need to realize in all these battles. Like we're not talking about like peaceful people here. We're talking about the nahua peoples who, for three hundred years have been doing nothing but fucking fighting. So like, if you gave the Spanish the same weapons, they'd be fucking done. Um, through malinsin, um Cortez made offers and they both made offers back and forth. He said, "Hey, like, look, you know, you guys are really tough and I hear maybe you want to go and uh, and go fight the Mexica in this city I keep hearing about. You want to like you want to team up. Uh, and so the Flush Collins are like looking at them and they kind of make the same decision that uh, that uh, the Totonacs, Totonacs had made. <clears throat> and they're like, "Yeah, all right. Like we'll get in on this. You guys seem pretty tough. Let's go. Let's go fuck up some Aztecs." So, all right. There's there's a, a new player has joined the field. Um, So, again, I want to make another, like, little side note here in our talk about varied responses and motivations of indigenous peoples when making deals with the Spanish. So I think it's really important to remember what I said about the varied relationships between not only the Mexica and subordinate and enemy states, but also between those subordinate states and those enemies with each other. In a land of constant struggle and warfare, uh, everyone had some kind of history with everyone else, and it's not always hunky-dory. Cortes, all told, is probably definitely the least informed of the major players involved here. He doesn't fucking care, and he doesn't know. Like, he doesn't know what the relationships between any of these city-states are. He doesn't have this concept of them all being quasi-independent. Remember, he comes from a, a, a newly established Spanish kingdom where, like, they've worked really hard to unify Iberia under one crown, under one rule. So there is this burgeoning sense of, you know, this modern unified political identity. It's still not totally modern in that sense in Europe, but it's much more like that than it is in uh, Mexico at this time. So, he doesn't really give a fuck, right? And so you remember how easy it was for the Totonac to convince them to just like wipe out one of their rivals by just being like, "Oh, they're Aztecs. Go um they're going to kill you if you don't kill them." And he's like, "Okay." Like that's sort of what they're doing, and the tlush Collins are like, "Fuck yeah, that's awesome. Like, <laughs> let's see if we can get these idiots to kill someone else." Um <clears throat> so even if he did know, he probably wouldn't have cared because he just thinks these people are all like like heathen savages. So it doesn't really matter. Their squabbles are beneath him. Um, so uh, Tlaxcala has another rival themselves in the nearby state of Cholula, um, which is under – that Cholula is under Mexica's sway. Um, solid and hot sauce too. It's a really solid hot sauce. A lot of these um, city-state names are still state names in Mexico. So Cholula is, Tlaxcala is um, – a lot of these, these are still the names of places. So we don't know exactly why they didn't like Cholula. Um, it's not super important, but but it's likely that Cholula... As but they a,
1: may prefer uh, Tapatio.
0: They might. It, so it yeah. could be a hot sauce-related issue.
1: Yeah, it could, there <laughs> might be some sauce uh, rivalry going on here.
0: Hell yeah. And I mean, these people, these Nahua people, along with the Maya peoples, are the fathers of, of modern Mexican cuisine and mothers and and parents. So they had like a guacamole guacamole they had yeah. like the chocolate mole sauce they made all kinds of great shit
1: yep so we we should be thanking them
0: we should be instead of genociding them but you know what can you do um it's probable that that cholula had just sided with Tenochtitlan in in kind of attacking or doing flower wars or whatever with with Tlaxcala, and that's enough i mean frankly if you fought against each other and you're just like fuck you guys used to be our friends and now you're Siding with those assholes. So that would be a good enough reason for a a grudge. What is important is that, uh, likely as a test of their new allies and likely as a way to achieve personal revenge or satisfaction, the Tlush Collins cleverly manipulated Cortez into believing that the Cholula were also poised to attack. So the combined force uh, of the Tlush Collins and the Cholula, and um, sorry, the Tlush Collins and the Spanish. Uh, march on the city of Cholula and, catching them unawares, turns out they weren't planning an attack at all, fancy that, looks like the Spanish just got fucking duped again, they completely sack the city. Uh, They execute the royal family, and they install a pro-Tlaxcala ruler instead. Uh, This was all the proof that that Tlaxcala needed. Uh, The Spanish were extremely powerful, um, but in the right sphere of influence, or under the right sway, uh, they could be manipulated by the leaders or the ruling castes of various Alta uh to serve local needs. So we've seen a couple of examples of that now. And there's also that theory that that Moctezuma is doing the same thing and that it's all just people see these people arrive and they think they're dumb. They don't know about any of our shit. How can we convince them to wipe out our enemies for us? Um, and so I think just in general, you should take away that that's a massively important factor in understanding this entire struggle Um, and why so many people end up siding with the Spanish in the end. It's not, like, just, like, hatred of the Mexica in particular. It's just, like, how can we manipulate these people into helping us get ahead? So in early November of 1519, the Spaniards reached the edge of the Mexica homeland, and they stared down into the Central Mexican Basin in complete disbelief. Uh, Moctezuma had sent emissaries and sort of attempted to bribe and dissuade the Spanish from entering the valley, um, politely explaining that he couldn't host a large party of this size uh, in the comfort that they deserved, right? Oh, I couldn't possibly, sir. I couldn't possibly. Uh, in reality... Oh, please, sir. I could not possibly, sir. sir. I do not sir, have the, the accommodations, sir. Sir.
1: Uh, sir, excuse me, sir. Sir, man of your only, status. <laughs> I am, this is merely a little basin, sir. So
0: you'd be mortified by our accommodations, sir. I, I couldn't possibly, sir. I
1: could not possibly, sir. I could not. Sir. Excuse
0: me. (laughs) Sir, you must take my life, sir. I offer it willingly. You could not... I could not, sir. I could not. You must draw my blood, sir. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sir, cut my... Sir, cut my weakling neck, sir, before I cannot bear the weight of your shame in me, sir, though I have so rightly earned it.
1: Sir, open my veins, and sup forth from my blood.
0: Sir, (laughs) Sir, surely my gifts are so feeble, let me give to you the greatest gift, my own life's blood, sir. Oh, man. Um... So in reality, I mean, he's saying all these things to them, but he's by now fully aware of the situation at hand. Um, <clears throat> so he, he's, whatever his intentions are, he, he knows either he, that he's going to succeed in scaring them away, or if he wants them to arrive, he's bribing them basically and saying, look at all this great shit I have. Come a little closer. Come into my web, little bug. I'm a spider named Moctezuma, I'm going to eat you. I'm going to wrap you up. I'm going to spin you in my web. I'm going to eat you whole. I'm going to suck out your juices. Yes, little get you. Little a you little Spanish bug, and I'm just a little, a juicy little Spanish I'm morsel. I'm Aztec spider, and I'm gonna spin you up. I'm gonna suck your juices. Um, so it's either that, or you know, he really doesn't want them to. We don't know, but either way, he's playing some kind of game. So uh, he realizes that he could maybe muster a force. I mean, he he's at this point can muster a fighting force on his own, like without calling all the allies of the realm. You need to realize how big. The population is, at this point, in the Central Mexican Basin. Moctezuma, at this point, theoretically can muster a force of like 50,000 men, which is fucking wild. You know, the population of of Tenochtitlan, we've mentioned this in part one of the series, is rivaled only by the major cities of the globe at this point. There are thousands and thousands of people living there. Um, potentially, you know, millions if you look at the whole Central Mexican Basin. It's a huge place. And so he's he's got the manpower. But he also realizes that even if he were to defeat the invaders, the cost of fighting them outright would likely be, and he knows they have native allies, so it's not like they're fighting alone. And those native allies add literal thousands because they're also strong. So they've got, you know, probably close to 20,000 native allies with them at this point uh, and their own fighting force of, you know, now maybe like 350 men and 10 cavalry or something like that. They've got little cannons. They've got all this shit. So he knows it's not going to be an easy fight, and even if he wins, uh, the casualties are so high that it's it's not worth it. He's going to basically destroy his own kingdom and leave himself vulnerable from all sides. So he's got to figure out a way to make this work for himself. Uh, and so Cortez responds. Obviously, he's like, "No, we're we're coming. We're going to come in. Thanks for the offer, but like, we'll see you in a minute. We're gonna we're gonna come in. Don't worry about the accommodations. We're we're, we're coming." And so they did just that, and they head down into the Central Basin, um, and they approach uh, the Mexica. Now, I want to read to you uh, a really great quote. Well, it's sort of partially a quote and partially um, a, a, a part from the book where they talk about you know, what it was like to enter the Mexican Basin and see all these amazing sites and see like just how unbelievably advanced this place was. They safely traversed the mountain pass between the volcano Popocatépetl, which means smoking mountain, and the snow-capped Iztaccíhuatl, white woman, uh, which is a mountain, and entered the valley. As they approached the lakeside towns at the center, the Spaniards, as well as many of the accompanying Indians who had also never seen the beautiful central basin, began to feel a sensation of awe. A Spaniard named Bernal Diaz wrote of his impressions many years later, these great towns and queues, which meant pyramids, uh, and buildings rising from the water, all made of stone, seemed like an enchanted vision from the tale of Amadís. Amadís was a legendary knight, and a book about him had recently become a bestseller in Spain. Indeed, the Spaniard remembered, some of our soldiers asked if it were not all a dream. When the men stopped to rest at the town of Itzapalapan, they were literally stunned. The Lord's Palace there rivaled buildings in Spain. Behind it, a flower garden cascaded down to a lovely pond. "...large canoes would come into the garden from the lake, through a channel they had cut. Everything was shining with lime and decorated with different kinds of stonework and paintings, which were a marvel to gaze on. I stood looking at it, and thought that no land like it would ever be discovered in the whole world." Bernal Diaz was writing these words as an old man. He had reason to feel a bit maudlin, as he thought of his lost youth, and then also recalled all that had happened since. As the paragraph at the end of the paragraph, he almost visibly flinches with shame. Today, all that I then saw is overthrown and destroyed. Nothing is left standing. So anyway, I just thought that was kind of poignant. So the entrance of the Spanish into the city was turned into a monumentally prestigious affair when they eventually reached Tenochtitlan. Uh, the Tlatoani of various allied altepetl and their noble kin had assembled at one end of the main causeway entering Tenochtitlan. The Spanish walked across, in total awe at this stunning city in the middle of a lake, uh, seeing chinampas and canoes on all sides, and just generally marveling at what they were seeing. Cortes wrote of his impatience at the length of the reception they received, as noble after noble stepped forward, kneeling low and touching the ground in the Nahua gesture of humble greeting between equal nobles. Finally, the formalities drawing to a close, Moctezuma arrived in a beautiful litter surrounded by guards and servants and all manner of impressive-looking people the Spanish immediately realized that this must be the king of these Mexica because he was clearly the most important person around by any metric. Cortes reportedly stepped forward to embrace the way Tlatuani as an equal which freaked everyone the fuck out cuz they're like whoa 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 you do not touch this guy <laughs> like and he's just like i'm going to give you a hug it's good to see you buddy you know thanks for offering me all that shit bring come it up. in
1: moctezuma come on maki
0: good to see you buddy so he goes in for like the fucking hug and moctezuma's like all right pal and i like to envision some like elite guard like some jacked up fucking Mexica dude with like a Makahuit who's you know killed 30 people and with his bare hands just like putting a fucking hand on his chest he's <laughs> like no, (laughs) like, nah, man, we, we don't approach Moctezuma like that, like what you need, you know? Um, and so, anyway, his entourage stops Cortez, uh, and, uh, at this point, it would have been dope if one of these guys had just fucking beheaded this dude with a Makahuit, but um, would have saved everyone a lot of trouble. But, again, nobody thinks to do that because the Mesoamericans are like, yo, we want to use this guy. How do we use this guy? Um, so the two leaders speak through translators, uh, mainly Malintzin, Um And Cortez would later claim that the Tlatuani immediately and without struggle offered up his kingdom, which would have been fucking insane. It's a bullshit thing to claim by any – like, nobody would believe that. But uh, it comes into play later why he did that. Um <clears throat> But so it's also important to note that in all Aztec uh, uh, depictions of this and other like meetings between the two, they always show malinzin standing in front of or next to Cortez. Um, it was likely that the uh, Mexica, seeing her doing all the speaking, uh, viewed her as an equal or at least, you know, not like a slave slash concubine like taken as spoils of war she was clearly a noble that's why they called her malinsin um not just malinche or not malin malina whatever it was um yeah malina uh because they, they saw her as as someone noble someone worthy of respect who was doing all the speaking for this great person in their eyes she must therefore be important um, it's not 100% clear that that's the interpretation. Um, it's open for debate. But it does suggest some really interesting theories about how the people involved on the Mesoamerican side would have would have seen these interactions, seen these uh, uh, dealings with the Spaniards. If they had uh, a Mesoamerican woman in such high standing, maybe they were people that could be trusted. You know what I mean? Maybe they weren't so... You know, alien. Maybe they weren't here to conquer. You know what I mean? It's if if, if they viewed this as an alliance and a and, and a uh a, a Nahua woman who was a true equal, it might have affected the way that they viewed these initial dealings. Which explains why they let the Spaniards into their city with such open arms. Um, So anyway, he definitely didn't offer up his kingdom immediately. Like, oh, you're so strong, sir. Let me offer you my anus. Like, he definitely didn't do that. Um, What likely occurred was that he listed off in, like, really illustrious fashion all of the previous kings and his ancestors and, you know, where he came from. And then, and this is really important, he purportedly bowed and offered his hospitality as the, quote, poor vassal of the Spanish. Now, that definitely would have, you know, confused the shit out of the Spanish. And frankly, Malincian probably should have explain this because she definitely understood this, which is why it's interesting to think about her motivations in all this. But Townsend is careful to note, right, that in Nahua culture, there is this really delicate courtly approach to language, especially among nobles, wherein opposites are used to convey a person's power, magnanimity, and social standing, right? So when you hear somebody like the Wei of the powerful Mexica Empire express to you their utter inferiority and offer up their, their complete service to you, that's a really polite way of saying, I am literally the master over everything that you see. Everyone here is at my command. I'm a big fucking deal, right? A king would never, an honorable king would never express that in words. But to the, the Nawa speakers listening, that it was as implicit in what he was saying as if he had actually said that. The Spanish, meanwhile, do not get any of that nuance. They don't understand that because they're so used to their kings being like, I'm the great and fucking powerful king. The Nawa would have found that disgusting, right? to hear a king speak about himself that way so there's another really important miscommunication here so he bows low and says like i'm at your total service i'm nothing but a little bitch boy and what he's saying is like yo like watch like watch how you step this is my city like i'm really what
1: he was doing was pulling his penis out yeah he's like it's big like see it's (laughs) big like i know you guys are bad but like I'm presenting it so (laughs) um
0: so yeah it's it's actually i love thinking about the fact that the Spanish are just like doping themselves into this whole thing, like, doo, 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 doo. oh, thanks, you're complete and total service, okay. Meanwhile, Moctezuma's like, watching them, he's like, all right, like, what are they up to? Like, he's much more savvy than they ever give him credit for. I'm
2: gonna break the law, then I'm gonna break the bank. I'm gonna put some in the safe, then I'm gonna throw some on the floor. Definitely make some more, 20 dates. Go back on tour She can see how I'm flexing Count my blessings Praise the Lord You know the steeds, Super grease Nothing nice Tell the promoter Bring the peas. Still ain't safe I'm in a party with my G's And I just made your girl My girl She's on her knees On her knees
0: Um, so they enter the city, they feast on fresh fish and game. As the Spanish mentioned, like, the quality of just food and produce and game and everything in the Central Basin is, like, beyond anything they've ever experienced. It's not rotten, you know? It doesn't have flies all over it. This is, like, a beautiful, clean place. They're eating good, they're getting treated good. Um, so they get, uh, taken around on, like, a tour of the city, and they're, they're being dicks. They're, like, demanding free shit from all the, the you know, vendors and stuff and Moctezuma's kind of rolling his eyes like just whatever, I'll take care of just give him what he wants. Like, I don't want to deal with this. This is so embarrassing. This is so obnoxious. He takes him to the palace and he's like, Yeah, take whatever you want. And he's like clearly being like, you know, yeah, take whatever you want. And they're just like, okay. And so they start like taking gold and shit. And he's just like, fuck, this is gonna be really expensive. Like, all right, sure. Like, take whatever you want. And they're just like melting down like his fucking beautiful carved gifts and stuff and making like gold bars out of it because they're just they suck they just suck so bad and uh all the while moctezuma is asking them questions he's like trying to figure out like hey like so how long do you plan on staying like what are your intentions with my daughter and actually no pun intended but that's gonna be important soon uh like what so like what brings you to mexico you know um also like are you gonna go soon Um, so thus begins approximately six months of like a tenuous peace where the Spanish installed themselves in the Royal Palace of Moctezuma. Um, they're, they're kind of set up there. And by the way, if you don't remember, Moctezuma's palace is like one of the modern, the, the marvels of the world at this point. It's like, it's fucking insane. He's got zoos, he's got aquariums, he's got gardens, he's got canal access, right? He's, 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 he's in a really nice neighborhood. The schools are great. Uh, and so he's, he's... He's living large, so they're not in, like, some little adobe hut. Like, this is one of the great palaces of the planet, Um, and it's not going to last another century, which is a shame.
1: Yeah, so uh, I was just, like, quickly, like, looking into, like, Lake Texcoco and just, like, looking at pictures of Tenochtitlan and shit, and I didn't realize the reason the lake isn't there anymore is because the Spanish fucked it up. Yeah. They, like, they were, like, trying to control flooding, and Mm -hmm. that led to the lake being drained. Mm Mm-hmm fucking dumbasses yeah they
0: they they. yeah dude they ruined everything yep one of the one of the greatest cities mankind had ever built and they like inside a century there was oh well, <laughs> yep, well oh, whoopsie daisy. Damn it. and that's the thing uh-huh. you really do have to think of that like you know as the descendants of europeans we love talking about how great we are at all this shit but a really cool alternate take to this entire narrative is that like If the Spanish didn't have, like, swords and shit, like, six steel weapons and stuff, this whole situation would have gone completely differently. Because they really have no fucking clue what they're doing. And the guy in charge is, like, just some dude who was like, I want to do a conquering. I want to go and make a thing. And everyone was like, yeah. And he was like, okay. And then they arrive in this, like, incredibly complex situation right in the middle of, like, one of the most pivotal moments in Mesoamerican history. And they're just like we'll fight anybody like just point us in the right direction <laughs> like it's just the whole thing is so bumbling and silly and and then the way that it ends up ending is so depressing because like so much of it has n- it's just luck and chance and nothing to do with anything they do right and uh everyone in mexico speaks spanish now so <laughs> you know fucking is what it is But way of the road um <clears> the <throat> way she goes bubs fucking way she goes Uh, we're drawing to a close, everybody. Don't be looking at the clocks worried, my co-host included. We're almost done here. Um, so during this time, Cortez takes the opportunity to write a bunch of letters, and he sends people back to the coast, because he still has a little camp set up on the coast, remember? Um... And he writes letters and he sends trinkets and gold and stuff describing his situation. And he's really talking himself up at this point. Uh, he describes how he's basically he's he's basically king here already. Okay. And the second he arrived, they were like, "Oh my God, you're so cool. You're clearly a god. Just take over. Like we suck. We're so bad at this. Just take over, please." And so he's writing all this back home. And uh, he knew the reason he's doing all this. It's it's very stupid and very calculated at the same time, because he knew that he was an outlaw at this point and he had not been given permission to conquer anything. So the only way for any of this to seem legal to the Spanish Crown, and the only way that like he's not about to just get arrested and tried and executed the second he goes home, is if he makes it clear uh, and gets them to believe that the Mexica had willingly bequeathed him with their territory and title, and voluntarily made themselves subjects of the Spanish crown, and then therefore any subsequent resistance to that could be considered revolt and could be put down violently. And, you know, he would just be suppressing revolution by loyal crown subjects. Um, he claimed that he had Moctezuma in chains and at his mercy. Now, in truth, uh, the way Tlatoani was was they the spanish claim that he was on like sort of house arrest um a lot of historians think that that's not even true he was still just running the show and um kind of had the spanish on on house arrest which is seems more likely to me considering he has 50,000 men at his disposal and has them on a little island but whatever um so the the captivity is totally implied it's not literal at all uh, Meanwhile, Moctezuma is trying to ply them with offers of tribute and gifts and whatever, just being like, "Can you get the fuck out of here? Like having you here is so expensive. You smell bad. You're making everyone uncomfortable." Um, he also offers them gifts, and these are considered political gifts by modern historians. One of which is his own daughter, uh, Tequichi Potzin, who's 13, um, and whose mother was also high-ranking. That the the his mother was actually, I'm sorry, her mother. Um, and I think it was one of uh, Moctezuma's wives, and a lot of people in Tenochtitlan didn't know this, but one of his wives was herself uh, a female ruler of a of an altepetl, which was really rare, and so he was also acting king consort of another city state. Um, but, you know, he obviously downplayed that because in that role he was subordinate to someone else. So whatever. But so this is a daughter of, I think, that woman. So incredibly valuable political currency. So to offer her to Cortez is like clearly like a, a more of a sign of like, yo, we should team up, right? Because that's what you do in this part of the world. But Cortez is just like, sweet dude's going to let me fuck his kid. Like, all right. Like, yeah, he must be really scared of me, bro. I'm, I'm the shit. And uh, so, you know, they have her baptized. They name her Isabel. We know what baptism means. She goes away and lives with the Spanish. And we don't know for sure what happens, but a lot of uh, Spaniards who were there write that uh, Cortez defiled many princesses during his time in Mexico. And who knows what everyone else was up to because they're not worth writing about. So there's a really good chance she had a bad fucking time. Um, Meanwhile, unknown to Cortez, he's becoming sort of a celebrity back home in Spain. His father who we're just going to call Cortez Sr., uh, through sort of a fundraiser and got some ships with supplies and men together to send to his son. Uh, His trinkets and jewels that he sent back were also put on display throughout the Holy Roman Empire, of which Charles V, King of Spain, was also now emperor. So Spain is especially a big deal at the moment. Famous painter Albrecht Durer uh, wrote upon witnessing the artifacts in Brussels, Quote, "All the days of my life I have seen nothing that rejoiced my heart so much as these things for I have seen among them wonderful works of art and I have marveled at the subtle intellects of men in foreign parts just another example of them making awesome shit that the Europeans were legitimately impressed by however" Uh, other people, not the king, were also interested in Cortez's expedition. Governor Velazquez of Cuba had sent two men in opposite directions as soon as Cortez had left. One, it's another great name, I love this name, Panfilo Nervais, uh, with a contingent of men who was sent to Mexico to rein in Cortez and bring him home for judgment. And then a second emissary had been sent all the way to Spain to complain to the crown about Cortez being a fucking little rule-breaking bitch. Now, Charles V was obviously convinced that Cortez's mission was dope and good, because obviously he's got all these slaves, and fuck, they just made him king? This rules. Uh, So that part didn't go well, but the other thing with Nervaez Panfilo Nervaez arriving in Mexico, that is about to get kind of nasty. So... Moctezuma meanwhile is still receiving uh, uh, regular news from the south even though the Spanish are here because he's worried that more of them are going to arrive and he's waiting to see like are there more of these guys coming because we can kind of deal with what we've got right now but if like 500 more of these guys show up with the same shit like we might be screwed Uh, and so sure enough when Panfilo Nervaez lands similarly outfitted with a similar number of guys
1: Panfilo is such a good fucking name dude
0: Panfilo I think it means like uh, brother to everyone like brother to the world or something, um, he <laughs> he arrives, and so immediately word is sent back, like, yo, like the thing you were worried about happening, where like 500 more Spaniards with a bunch of horses show up, yeah, it just happened. So Cortez happens to be in audience with Moctezuma when the messenger arrives, and so both men receive word of this at the same time, and like, you must have been able to see the fucking sweat on Cortez's face when this shit happens, right? Because he's looking at the most powerful man in the region right now who just found out that a contingent of potential reinforcements just arrived. And he's got Cortez in his fucking room with him. And so, you know, if I were him, I'd be, like, worried that they'd just fucking kill me and be like, whatever, better to deal with them in two parts than all together. Yeah, um, if
1: I was Moctezuma would have
0: flipped Yep, yeah, that's it. So <laughs> Moctezuma uh, has no way of knowing that that's all part of... He, he just assumes that this is all part of Cortez's plan. He hears that and thinks, fuck, reinforcements. Cortez d- knows that Moctezuma does not know that that's not true, but he also knows that there's no way anybody came from Spain this fast to help him. He just sent out letters asking for help and reinforcements. He knows this has to be from Cuba. This has to be Velazquez and that these people aren't here to help him. They're here to fucking arrest him. So he's like, fuck. So he's put into a really tough position. He has all the same thoughts we just had, which is like, if anybody outside this room fucking figures out what's happening, we might all get killed like tomorrow. So <laughs> uh, I got to do something. So he gets his men together and they fucking take Moctezuma. They actually take him captive at this point put him in chains they take the palace and they're like fuck it we're putting this shit on lockdown and uh cortez is like i gotta get a group of guys together and we gotta go figure out this nervaya situation because if i can't get there and convince them to join forces with me and that this whole thing is like Totally street legal, then we're fucked. This whole enterprise is going to fall apart. So he leaves a lot of his, or most of his native allies behind. He leaves a contingent of his own men behind. He says, Hold this palace under all circumstances. You are not to give up control of Moctezuma. You are not to give up control of the city. I'm going to go deal with nervias sit tight, and I will come back. I'll either die or I'll come back with all these reinforcements and everything's going to be good. So they're like, Okay. And they're left, and, you know, they're still getting fed. They're getting their laundry done, all this shit. Um, but they're in a really tough situation basically a hostage situation so he cortez leads a contingent of men he heads out to the coast right and as soon as they arrive he sends a bunch of emissaries secretly into nervia's camp to scope it out and also starts offering bribes to his like officers saying like yo like some shit's about to go down if Cortez is suddenly in charge, like, are you going to back him? Because there's a ton of fucking riches and gold here to be had. And if you guys fuck this up, like, we're all going to miss out on a big payday. And so they all slowly get brought on board, right? And so then a couple days later, Cortez launches a surprise attack in the middle of the night. And just really quickly, like, all the officers kind of, like, revolt at once. They capture Narvaez off with his head. Cortez looks around at everybody and says, like, anybody got a problem with me being in charge? Because we're all about to make a huge fuck ton of money. And uh, there's, like, all kinds of riches here for the taking who's up for that rather than like a little civil war and they're all like yeah cool we don't really give a fuck sounds good to us so <laughs> cortez has his reinforcements and he's stoked and he's just like all right like i'm headed back this is going to be sick like this is everything i hope for it all worked out so he's going to head back march into the city take shit over boom no problems right but things are going really fucking bad back in Tenochtitlan. Um, <clears throat> Trouble is seriously brewing. So here, I actually have to make note of something really quickly that I didn't write about, but it's going to be very fast. So the trouble really quick kicks off in May of 1520. Now keep in mind, you know, they've been here for six months, so it's 1520 now. Um, The Feast of Toshcatl is one of the most important religious feasts in the Aztec cosmology. And we talked before about how um, they had a separate annual calendar and then they had a religious calendar so this is this is one of the most most popular um it's in it's in honor of the god tezcatlipoca um and involves you know human sacrifices in this case a young man is sacrificed uh unfortunately um so Cortez is gone, and Moctezuma's in control. And he's like talks to Pedro de Alvarado, who's the guy that Cortez had left in in charge. And he's like, "Listen, this festival is really important. We have to be allowed to, we have to be allowed to celebrate, right?" And the Spaniards are like, "Okay, fine. You guys can have your little stupid feast, whatever." Uh, so they have the festival. And they sacrificed this young man, whatever. And the Spanish were watching. Now, uh, the accounts differ. The Spanish claim that the reason that they do what they're about to do is because they didn't realize there was going to be human sacrifice and they were so appalled by it that the only thing that they could do, being good Christians and seeing human sacrifice, was fucking kill everybody. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. Does it make sense to you? Uh, no. <laughs> i'm gonna leave the timing of that in completely intact because that's yeah no it doesn't make any sense right but that's what they say and like they're, they're like oh we would never have done it but like human sacrifice is a sin so you know we fucking killed all the sinners um which is wild uh but realistically it seems like uh it seems like the the reality um is that They saw this opportunity and all these fucking nobles and warriors gathered. And I don't know. Something went down. There was some scuffle. Maybe the Spanish were like... I don't. I don't even fucking know. But they went in and they ended up killing like a ton of nobles and a ton of warriors and all these people, and then being like, "Well, sorry that happened," and like retreating back to the palace. And so the Mashika who are already like chafing under their fucking control are just like, "You know what? You know what? This fucking sucks. Like, we're over this shit. This fucking sucks." So all of a sudden, like, all interactions. We tried to be nice hosts. You know, you you guys took advantage. You kidnapped our king. We have our super great festival coming up. We killed one guy. Yeah, it's a thing we do. Okay, we're not. We don't make a big deal out of it. It's important. Okay, yeah, why, we killed one guy. <laughs>
1: why are you guys harsh in the harsh in the vibes?
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's totally hypocritical that you see yeah. that and you think it's okay to just kill all of our nobles. So whatever. Yeah. So this massacre happens, and. You know, the reasons behind it are obviously misreported and convoluted um, due to the Spanish doing that. But uh, the point is, it just, that's the final straw. And it, like, incenses the entire population, and they're just like, fuck this. So all interactions between the Spanish and the Mexica cease. The, the Spanish realize something's wrong, right? When the girl that's been doing their laundry for them, they go down to, like, find her where she normally is, because they've been, like, paying her to, like, help them do their laundry and bring them food and stuff. And they find her with her fucking throat cut, left there dead as a message, like, you you know, nobody's dealing with the Spanish anymore. And anyone who does is about to get fucking killed. And so they're like, okay, this is starting to get a little spooky because there's not a ton of us and there's a ton of them. And uh we're hearing a lot of like hammering and shit going on out there, like something's going on out there. And uh, then all of a sudden there's there's an assault on the palace, and a ton of fucking warriors storm the palace, and they kill some of the Spanish, they kill some of their native allies. Um, and, you know, they're in a palace, so they're able to kind of barricade themselves in and repel the attack, but it's all completely clear now that, like, any illusion of peace is completely over, and the Mashika are, like, trying to fucking kick them out. So that night, after they repel the attack, and the, the Mashika are able to pull some of their dead back, they hear this, like, bone-chilling war cry, like, raise up from all over the city, and it's, they immediately understand, even though they're like, like alright, shit's about to get fucking real. They want revenge and they're going to fucking come after us again. So, like, we got to get ready. Meanwhile, the men of the city of Tenochtitlan start fortifying the entire city for fucking all-out urban warfare. They start barricading city streets. They're just basically they're like telling all civilians like stay inside because like either we all die or the Spanish are fucking gone. There's no in between. So they're like just getting themselves ready. They're like fuck it. It's like uh, it's like in the movie First Blood when John Rambo is like they drew first blood. Like it's like that. <laughs> and so they're like fuck it. Like I'm gonna fight them to the last man. Meanwhile, the the, the Spanish are. Also, kind of hunkering down, fortifying the palace, rationing their food. And they're like, we just, we gotta wait for Cortez to get back because otherwise we're all dead. Um, Cortez arrives. He comes back with all these men. He's newly reinvigorated. He's got supplies, he's got weapons and horses. He gets back to the city on June 24th, 1520, and the streets are fucking empty. And he's like, all right, that's weird. Because, like I said, this is like one of the biggest, most bustling cities on earth. And all of a sudden, there's nobody. You see a little fucking what do they called little tumbleweed roll through the that streets little
1: tumbleweed going across
0: just hear the wind whipping through the adobe and you're just like oh, uh, all
1: right you can hear the closing of shutters yeah dude. right yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> something's about to go down um so it's really unnerving so they walk through the streets and nobody stops them and they get all the way to the palace and they rejoin forces and they find out what happened and cortez, cortez goes oh fuck they just let us in they did it on purpose Oh, fuck. <laughs> this is a trap. <laughs> and So, it is a trap. Uh, it becomes clear almost immediately that uh, the Mexica had barricaded every other exit from the palace except for the main causeway, and they allowed them to cross it and enter the city. And then they look out and realize that the Mexica are pulling all the bridges in, so there's no way to get back to the mainland. They've got all the canoes, and the Spanish are trapped on the island. And they're like, fuck.
1: Yeah, and Cortez is just like, hmm. <laughs> so something not that chill is going down.
0: Yeah, we're, we're potentially in a not super chill situation here, guys. Um, <clears throat> so, like I said, they've, the, they're completely basically trapped. Uh, and the Spanish have no food because uh, nobody's been trading any food with them. And Tenochtitlan has been turned into a virtual powder keg. And so Cortez is like, this is... Uh, uh, this is the best bet for us to get the fuck out of here um so he's hoping that the main causeway that they came in has been left open so that the mexica themselves can use it but he also knows that all the causeways are you know semi-portable so like frankly at this point he's like fuck it if we have to swim we have to swim i I, we got to get off this island because it's a death trap so in late june of 1520 violence erupts again There's another attempted assault on the palace, uh, fighting in the streets. The Spanish are attempting to steal some food from the marketplace, and uh, fighting just erupts, right? And so the Spanish send Moctezuma up to the roof of the palace, and they ask him to entreat his people for peace, right? And he's basically got a sword to his back, but he's like, you know, fellow Mexica, like, they're too powerful. We can't hope to stand up to them. He's also potentially just performing his duties as, you know, he sees it as a good Tlatoani. He doesn't want all his people to fucking die. So if they have to make some shit deal right now to avoid that, whatever, maybe it makes sense to him. But the warriors of the city are reportedly incensed at this and they they don't stop fighting. But in the moment, um, Cortez uses the sudden ceasefire. He rallies his men. He's like, this is our fucking moment. Like, everybody's quiet for a second. We ought to just fucking charge this city and get off this fucking island because otherwise we're all dead. So before leaving, it is very likely that as a last act of like fuck you, they just had Moctezuma strangled like a common criminal. Um, and Cortez would later claim that his own people had killed him after they left uh, for being such a coward. Um, I don't know how he would know that since he's in the middle of leaving the city. It's it's pretty much understood that as a, just a fuck you, the Spanish just killed him like a fucking peasant on his way on their way out. Um, but what's important is that. Moctezuma does not survive the day. Uh, June 30th is going to come to be known to the Spanish as La Noche Triste, or the Night of Sorrows. Uh, So the Spanish and their indigenous allies are rushing to escape the city, but there's a lot of them. There's between 800 and 1,000 Spaniards, um, there's a bunch of horses, and there's about 20,000 native allies with them. And they're forced into, like, a very narrow, basically single file. I mean, the streets in the city are wide, but, like, they've basically been forced into a long train of men trying to get to this one long, narrow bridge to get off this little island, which is a pretty great spot if you're a bunch of angry Mashika and you want to fucking pick off a bunch of people with better weapons than you. Um, So they're being shot at with arrows. They're fighting. They're running. And uh, when they finally get to the causeway, at least the first part of it is open. So they start crossing, and it gets them more than halfway across Um, But the Mexica are waiting for them, and as soon as they start entering the bridge, men in canoes fucking swarm the causeway from all sides and start stabbing up at them with spears. They're throwing darts at them with atlatls They're shooting them with arrows. And so the the Spanish are just getting fucking picked off as they cross this narrow little bridge off the city. Um, Particularly vulnerable are the horses, and the Mexica know that if they get to the other side with other horses, those are particularly devastating. Now, the horses are armored. But their bellies are totally vulnerable. So the Mashika make a point of, and you know, these poor horses, they didn't ask for any of this. They're stabbing up and killing horses left and right because they just don't want to have to deal with them later. So Cortez at this point orders a rear guard of cavalry to hold the city side of the bridge at all costs to enable the greater force to escape, but later accounts from multiple members of this this battle all admit, like, nah, that didn't last, we just had to fucking escape, and so horses are trampling their own men, people are, like, stomping on each other to get out of there, it's a full-scale retreat. Um, and eventually they realize that the far end of the, of the causeway to the mainland has been pulled up. So there's this strip of water, right? And the lake isn't super deep, but a lot of these guys are in armor. A lot of them are on horses, but whatever, it's their only chance. So they fucking jump off and so many of them get trampled. So many of them get drowned and stomped into the mud and just never make it off this fucking island. Um... And a, a, an uncountable number of Flux Collins uh, and, or I'm sorry, Tlush Collins and uh, Spanish are just fucking drowned and trampled and picked off by the Mexica in the canoes. Um, many Mexica died also, uh, but we don't have a tally of, of their deaths. But like I said, the Spanish were basically in full-on retreat at this point. And so they weren't bothering to stop and, like, run. They just all wanted to survive. So he gets to the mainland, Cortez, and all his men, and they tuck tail and they fucking book it to the Yucatan, to their base camp, to try to regroup and hope that their pleas for supplies and men have been heard from Spain. Otherwise, their whole expedition is basically doomed. Um, so all told, out of a starting force of between 600 and 1,000 Spaniards and between, uh, between 400 and 800 of those have been killed or captured or drowned in the escape. And of their approximately 20,000 <laughs> indigenous allies, between two and 4,000 met similar fates. So this is a fucking devastating defeat for the Spanish yeah. and their allies. Um, and honestly, it should have been enough to stop them. And it would have been enough if they were another local people who you know had to wait two decades for a generation of men to grow up and fill out their armies but you know what the the mexica don't realize is they can just get supplies from spain and there's a lot of people in spain (laughs) so the spanish are more likely to be able to bounce back the mexica not so much and unbeknownst to them the worst quote-unquote weapon that's available to the spanish has already silently been unleashed in the city and all the surrounding countryside and is being spread as we speak and no one knows it not even the spanish and that is a tiny, tiny, tiny little virus called variola, better known as smallpox. And as we speak, that is slowly getting ready to just fucking explode and decimate the entire population of this region. Um, also, at the dirty same continent time,
1: continent Europe is oh, dude, it rocks. Just Europe, a Europe festering, is so cool. Just every every country, just filled with festering, disease-ridden, pox-ridden freaks.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. The people are good. The place is good. It's all good. Um, also, at the same time as plus, I plus, where else
1: are you going to get a plowman's lunch of a nice raw white onion with some piece of bread, some cheese, and a an nail? Yeah,
0: that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, all all really good redeeming qualities of of the European lifestyle.
1: Yeah, the raw white onion, you know, <laughs> a, you know, classically a thing that you you can you can eat anytime.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. So at the same time as smallpox is about to blow up and just, like, double fuck the fucking Nahua peoples, uh, a big contingent of men and resources is about to arrive from Spain and just basically completely rejuvenate Cortez's forces, bring them a ton of supplies, more weapons, more fucking men. They're about to bounce back completely from this. And when the natives see this, a ton more natives are about to join them. And the Mexica are like, Wow, we really survived that like devastating battle that like partially destroyed our city. And then they're about to get fucking like just womped on by fucking disease. And Cortez is gonna come back in like six months and be like, Yeah, I'm ready to go again. You guys ready? You guys ready for round two? And they're just gonna be like, no. And he's gonna be like sick. All right. So <laughs> yeah. So uh uh, when the Spanish return, things are going to look pretty bad, um, and so that's the end. I know this was a long one. That's the end of our narrative for today. And as you can see, the story's still not over, and there's still so much to talk about. So, um, you know what that means? It's going to be Aztecs four, because uh, I don't want to shoehorn shit in, and I I already am. Like I'm already skipping shit. I'm already fucking oh. shoehorning shit in. So, um,
1: well, yeah. Uh, welcome to the uh, four part <laughs> series club. Your yeah. first foray.
0: Yeah, I've never done a four parter. Um, So this is my first four-parter, and uh, I will also at some point tie this into another either one or two episodes I want to do on um, post-conquest colonial structure in not only Mexico, but in Central and South America in general. because I think that whole period is really interesting with the encomienda system and all that. So um there will be more to come, but I'm not gonna do it right after this. I need a break from this. I'm sure you need a break from this. I'm sure our listeners need a break from this. Um my next episode i already picked out. It's gonna be something totally different about like a batshit conspiracy theory that is really fun and stupid to talk about. So we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna talk more about other stuff, but in sometime in August uh. we'll wrap up the uh the the Aztec saga, or at least the Spanish Aztec saga and it's gonna that the last part's just brutal it's like really fucked up and sad if you think there's gonna be a lot more like triumphant mexica victories don't hold your breath because like they're not coming and <laughs> that was pretty much it that was it like that's why uh-huh. i ended this one there because like they rallied and they were badass and i love the image of them just like barricading the city and pulling in the bridges and there's like it's like that rorschach moment where it's like you don't understand uh-huh. we're not stuck in here with you you're yeah. fucking stuck in here with us, and they have this like badass moment where they're like, "Fuck it, either we all die or you guys are leaving," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they do it. Um, but it it just it costs too much. Um, but anyway, the the last stands of the Aztecs are still brutal and awesome, and we're gonna learn a lot about them. Um, I just want to also once again shout out uh, our friend uh, uh, Majora Z off Twitter, who has been super instrumental and gave me a ton of interesting stuff. There will be more addendums to these episodes that I'm going to bring up. We just have to connect and get those exchanged. So as soon as I have them, you guys will know, like, you know, I'll I'll try to do some retroactive corrections to any mistakes I might've made in the past. And I also want to take this opportunity to quickly just thank everyone who listens um, and engages with us online. And I want to encourage everybody. And I know Evan feels the same. If you guys hear us talk about something and you're interested and you want us to elaborate, or like, if you feel like we've said something wrong, um, you know, we got a fact incorrect or we're giving, you know, a confusing take on something, or even if you just feel like you'd like us to elaborate on a particular topic or include alternative takes to a given event. Um, we love hearing from you guys and we will always take that stuff into consideration. And, you know, we're not professionals. We don't expect you to be a professional historian. I mean, obviously we want your feedback to be constructive, yeah. um, but you know, we're just amateurs and when we do this as a hobby and um, we will definitely take you seriously unless you demand that we don't. Um, Mm-hmm. Via actions or words. So basically, like if you seem cool and your info seems legit, which in this case um, it, it did, um, we will definitely try our best to incorporate that into what we do. We we would love to hear from you guys. So Twitter, yeah. email, whatever. Um, yes,
1: I know. I know there are some uh, you know uh, prominent podcasts out there that maybe make a point to consistently uh, tell fans to not reach out. The left on red promise is that we want you
0: to yeah yeah exactly (laughs) and like you know in the case of this particular example like you know we work a ton we like aren't just sitting around making this show all the time and we don't expect that from you guys as listeners either but um you know if we can yeah, there's only so much that we can do sure but if we like can coordinate like we'll we'll do our best so um we really appreciate that majority you rock thank you so much for all your help and uh Mm -hmm. we will be back and you know I will collaborate with them further on future episodes because I, I really appreciate their their take on things, and they really know their shit. Uh, take it from me, they're the real deal. So um, I, we've, we've been through a lot of conversations, and they know way more than I do. So, um, yeah, we, we appreciate that. Uh, anything else you want to add? Nope. Cool. I know this was a long one. To those of you that stuck it out to the end, I appreciate it. I This is easily the biggest undertaking i've taken for this show i know episode one started kind of rinky dink but by now i'm fucking balls deep in this shit so uh thanks for listening and we will as always catch you next time on left unread
1: yep uh yeah and as usual please tell people about us because we spread through word of mouth yeah so thank you
0: i'm gonna make a bad joke much like monkeypox, we spread through mouth We're okay. Gonna cut, that's a bad joker and cut that. Uh, we we anyway, can workshop it. No, yeah. leave that in. Okay. <laughs> All right. Much Oh, much like smallpox, which is more relevant to our story. Uh, I, that's where know. I thought you were going to we go. We spread by that? skin-to-skin contact <laughs> and <laughs> by that I mean word of mouth. Um cool. Bye.
2: What's going on? Oh.